Welcome to Useful Idiots. Welcome to Useful. I'm fulfilling a lifelong dream, although they, sh- they should be Idiots. cardboard. So, so I'm, I'm Katie Matt- Halper, and this is Matt Taibbi. Matt Taibbi. I'm speak for you this episode. Yeah, disgusting week. I, I, I have, I've reached the stage of my life and career where I am, I am just totally disgusted with humanity to, mm. the, to the point where it, it's just difficult for me to even talk about the news. This week. It was anything, so really. horrible last week. I'm, it, people are just disgusting all around. Yeah, so anyway. This is, this is the positive energy that people turn into the show I know, to listen to. I know. To, it was uh, just so bad. Last. We'll, we'll, get, we'll get into yeah, all we'll of it. Into, uh, yeah. But crazy week in politics. Nevada caucus. Lots of shenanigans. Nevada. 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 Not Nevada. I know that because of Chris Matthews. And although I don't take his word on most things slash anything related to Sanders, I do believe he knows how to pronounce Nevada. Nevada. Okay. Nevada. Nevada. Yeah. Should we just say Nevada a bunch of Nevada, times? Yeah, Nevada, yeah. Nevada. New Hampshire. New Hampshire. Nevada. 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 We have a great guest today. We're going to talk to Felix Salmon, who's one of the smartest Wall Street correspondents around. He's been covering the finance sector for a long time. Uh, has a lot to say about the state of the financial services industry. And he's not just saying he's smart because he has that British accent, which automatically accent. gives you a couple of notches, raises you. Makes him seem yeah, even, even smarter. smarter. But he's, but he's actually smart. To us. Speak for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but yeah, should we start with the four basic Let's food groups? Oh, first. and get your merch. You can find that uh, if you go to the YouTube videos. You'll find a link to the merch in the description of the videos. Yeah, get mugs and put Don't very, very strong, like pure grain alcohol. Mm-hmm. Maybe mix it with a little rainwater. Yeah, uh, and then just acid drink rain, the acid rain water once. Yeah, uh, and you'll feel great. You also get bags and t-shirts. And yeah, exactly. So it, when you're drinking the pure grain alcohol, you should be wearing a t-shirt. Yes, um, definitely make sure. Yeah, you don't want to do that shirtless. That would be uncouth. Right. When you're getting really drunk off of moonshine. It can Get work ugly. out badly. Yeah. Work out ugly, yeah. So four basic food groups. Yeah. Uh, let's start out with Democrats. Democrats, suck. Suck, which is a, len- a lengthy, rich I topic I mean, it's like week. the best, yeah. So we got um, Steve McElroy, who is the former chief of staff to the West Virginia Senate and uh, lieutenant governor, also a Buddha judge fan. And he tweeted the following tweet. He writes, as a alleged leader, and sick, right? As a alleged, not an. As a alleged leader, if Bernie Sanders doesn't show any leadership by muzzling Nina Turner, he's going to make it hard for many to support him. So some people may find that problematic because he's comparing a black woman and friend of the show. To a horse? And former guest. No, to a dog. Dog, right. I'm sorry. Yes. You're Muzzle, like to a horse. crocodile. Yes. Yeah. Do, do horses get muzzled too? No, they don't. No, okay, yeah. No, they don't. But you guys, that may seem offensive because he's basically demanding that Sanders silence a black woman who he's comparing to a dog. So it's the double whammy. But before you get too upset, here's what happened as, as he himself he deleted that tweet and then went back to the Twitters and wrote, Nina Turner, dear Ms. Turner, allow me to begin by apologizing for any comment that was made on my Twitter account regarding awesome. you. Many won't believe it, but I had been hacked and have never made a disparaging remark about you. Awesome. I don't speak that way. I love it. You know who else this happened to? Uh, Joanne, Joanne Reed. Reed. Yeah. It's a terrible thing that happens to um, and many other people. Yeah, I mean, I'm yeah. not remembering at the moment, but this this is great. This is one of You're my favorite things. You're not remembering, just like he doesn't remember ever having tweeted this, and he tweeted it like two days ago or something, very recently. Right. Anyway, so another toxic Pete, bro. Dear, uh, dear Ms. Turner, I have multiple personality disorder, and yeah. I've been tweeting as eight different people right. for the last four years. One of whom was a racist, misogynist, hypocrite. And I apologize if if that person. Uh, right. Over whom I have no control, right. wrote this tweet. I mean, it's just absolutely ridiculous. It's so ridiculous. Just take the. I mean, I guess I don't. I guess it's in a way. It's which is worse. You probably think it's worse to just lie, right? 
I almost like that he acknowledges that it's an awful thing to have said, but yeah, it's I, so unbelievable. Like, defend, so now he's offending her intelligence. I, I, I a little bit admire the shamelessness of this, mm -hmm. but not, not quite. Because it's, it's actually not even that creative anymore. Right. So, no. It's screw, not, even, screw it's this not guy. like when, when Pete... When Chris Matthews said that the fart noise was the moving mug, yeah, that was creative. Yeah, anybody who's ever uh, been in that position can admire the ingenuity of, right. the, of that, of that, of that yeah. excuse. Right. Yeah. And by the way, we have a runner-up to that. This is Jason Johnson, Dr. Jason Johnson, who is a frequent MSNBC contributor, also a contributor to Sirius XM, which is where we just saw him, and um, a, uh, a politics editor at The Root. I do find it fascinating that racist liberal whites seem to love them some Bernie Sanders consistently and always have a problem with any person of color who doesn't want to follow with the orthodoxy of their Lord and Savior Bernie Sanders. The man cares nothing for intersectionality. And I don't care how many people from the island of misfit black girls that you throw out to defend you on a regular basis. <gasps> okay. It All doesn't right. mean that That's your campaign you is serious. That is him trying to critique Bernie Sanders uh, for not being intersectional and for not being good on race. And the way he makes that point is by calling people like Brianna Joy Gray residents of residents the island of misfit black girls. My favorite moment from this interview is actually a different one where he, he rails against Sanders for using the word uh, oligarch. And then at the end of the interview, one of the other people on the show is like, well, he is kind of uh, for using the word oligarch with regard to Bloomberg. And at the end of the interview, the other person is like, well, he is kind of an oligarch going. He's like, that's not the point. You don't go around calling people oligarchs in America. First off, most people don't even know what the hell it means. But he is kind of an oligarch, though. But that's not the issue. And just this whole thing where people try to claim who, wherever they rest on the hierarchy of intersectionality yeah. opinions. And then I, I, it's just ridiculous. It's yeah. gotten absurd. It's kind of beautiful, though, because it's such an, a self-own. Yeah, that was not probably not a, a moment that he's going to yeah. re revisit with enormous pride. Uh, Republicans suck. Uh, you know, Trump commuted the sentence of Rod Blagojevich. Blago. Which, Blago. And if we could see the clip of uh, Trump talking about why he commutes uh, Blago's sentence. We have commuted the sentence of Rod Blagojevich. He served eight years in jail, long time. And uh, I watched his wife on television. I don't know him very well. I met him a couple of times. He was on for a short while of The Apprentice years ago. Uh, <laughs> seemed like a very nice person. Don't know him, but he uh, served eight years in jail. There's a long time to go. Many people disagree with the sentence. He's a Democrat. He's not a Republican. Uh, it was a prosecution by the same people, Comey, Fitzpatrick, the same group, uh, very far from his children. They're growing older, they're going to high school now, and they rarely get to see their father outside of an orange uniform. Okay, all right, that's about as much as I can take of that. I, okay, everybody who has kids is going to feel bad. For, you know, the, the, the kids don't get to see their parents except for in a, uh, an orange jumpsuit. But let's remind people of what Rob what Blagojevich. Did. This is Blagojevich talking about the fact that he had a, the power to, to decide who was going to occupy the Senate seat of, vacated by Barack Obama. Uh, a Senate seat is a fucking valuable thing. You don't just give it away for nothing. I've got this thing, and it's fucking golden, and uh, I'm just not giving up for fucking nothing. I so, like it. This is a man who sold a Senate seat, okay? Or at least that, that was his intention anyway. Right. Um, I have a feeling that he can handle a felony sentence in prison. And uh, again, we'll talk about this with Felix too, but the, the, the symbolism 
of right. letting this jackass out of jail at the same time you're, let, you're, you're, you're pardoning Mike Milken, who's one of the biggest uh, offenders in the history of Wall Street. I think it tells everybody that you know co- corruption is on, uh, both in the finance, in the private sector, and in the public sector. Right. So totally gross. I don't gross. know. I kind of like it. You like it? Yeah, it's bipartisan. It's postpartisan. I appreciate that. Okay. I like when Trump gets soft on. I I, I like when Trump goes into like criminal uh, justice reform mode. And I gotta say, I feel like it's a good day for all men who stop dyeing their hair and just embrace gray, <laughs> the gray, embrace the gray. So you're um, you're in favor of the Blagojevich look. Well, yeah. yeah. I mean, no, not really. I just feel like there's an uh, vulnerability and honesty that he that he's communicating by no longer. Although maybe he couldn't dye his hair in jail. Perhaps. Anyway, I don't know. It's just so, a, I love that Trump clip, though. I'm not going to lie. Just, just to Very be clear. Very long time. Eight I'm years. in favor of much lower pr- prison of sentences all the way yes. around. But uh, if, if if people are going to be doing well, ten, it's the ten hypocrisy years, thing. Yeah, it goes exactly. Back to the hypocrisy so thing. you know, if, the, if we're going to start letting people out of jail because right. a lot of people have to go visit their 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 mommies and daddies in jail every weekend right. and they get tired looking at it year after year. Uh, not just the former governor of Illinois. Well, also, so. right. On a similar note, maybe you don't want to call for the reinstatement of the death penalty for the Central Park Five, or maybe you don't want to say that it's bad that they got paid a settlement, which they got because they were had their confessions coerced. Right, yeah. Uh, what do we got for, isn't that weird? Isn't that weird? We have a heartwarming story um, about an interspecies reunion. So this happened oh, I love in interspecies Cali- content. Right? Okay, yeah. A wild bear. Um, well, this is sad. The wild bear has been sedated and captured after it was seen roaming in a residential area in Monrovia, California. It was a 28.3 stone. What is that? 180 kilograms? How many pounds is that? Uh, Anyone know? 200 and... So uh, yeah. Plus size. Dan, what do we got for uh, that? It was a plus size. Kilogram Dan. 300. Oh yes. my God. Okay. This, okay. This is not just, isn't that weird? That's, isn't that good in a way? Or That's maybe right. it's isn't 2. that terrible? It's 2.2 kilograms, right? So yeah. a 390 pound elderly female walked through the residential areas close to Angela's National Forest. A mild California winter could be a possible reason for the sighting as warmer weather causes bears to leave their dens in search of food. Uh, can we play the videotape? Oh. So here she is. You just see her like chilling and waddling. God, I hope the bear eats the dogs. Stop it! It's a wild black bear, by the way. So, and you see her just like jump over that. She's fence. so cute, and these dogs are excited. So you see her um, walking around. She's like walking into the entrance, and then she's walking around the residential area, and um, she's really cute. Isn't she cute? Uh, from this distance, she's cute. Yeah. Well, absolutely. I just think it's a great, you know, I'm glad that we're seeing a full-figured elderly <laughs> female bear because, as we know, I don't like the ending, which is that they sedated and captured her. Yeah. But I think it's good to see this kind of images, these types of images, because fuller-figured older women like are very rarely yeah. allowed, given camera time. Right. But she just owns it. She's just walking around and she won't be invisibilized. Excellent cross species content. Yeah. Uh, I'm all for it. All right. Uh, isn't that terrible? Did you watch the NBA All Star game? No, you didn't, right? Not this weekend. Let's listen to Sh- uh, Shaka Khan's national anthem. Oh, oh, she sang there? <laughs> First 
<laughs> Wait, is that bad? Was that like... <laughs> Did they turn their backs on the players? I love how Donovan Mitchell just, he just can't take it anymore. Yeah, like, he has uh, to look away. Yeah. She looks good, though. She and looks that, young. Let's go, let's go to some other famous national okay. anthem performances. This one, obviously, is a classic. Roseanne Barr. 1990. Tell me when I should start. Right now? I'll say, can you sing? Like, she's not a singer. She's a comedian. So no one expects, I mean, it's a joke, right? Yes, yeah. this is a joke. So I think I think we're we're okay with this one. Yeah, that's not the best one though. Oh, okay. Wow. Okay. Let's Carl see. Lewis. Do you know who Carl Lewis is? An athlete. Yes, he was an athlete. He was one. Of, he was at one time the world's fastest man. Uh, and it's an old ESPN broadcast, okay. and it's it's actually worth watching at least their reaction to this. Harry okay. said in one of his movies that a man's got to know his limitations. Carl Lewis apparently didn't see the movie. If his rendition of the Star-Spangled Banner prior to the Nets-Bulls game last night is any indication, as a public service, we present now only excerpts, ladies and gentlemen, our national anthem. All right, are we all ready? Here we go. Oh, 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 say. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. I'll make up for it now. What did you say? I'm going to make up for it now. The free. Oh, I feel so bad for him. <laughs> so, yeah, to be fair, uh, a, a lot of people yeah. have made, and especially in sports radio, right. uh, have, have continually made fun of the, uh, the the Carl Lewis national anthem. But I don't know. The, the, the Shaka Khan was pretty pretty intense. Yeah. Isn't that terrible? Well, that's the question. Isn't that terrible? Is it or terrible which or one is the most terrible is the question, right? My favorite is that Carl Lewis. Where yeah. He just loses the threat. I feel so bad for him. I'm going to make up for it now. Oh, yeah. so sweet. <laughs> what I like is that he does make up for it. He goes off key. He lowers it, but he doesn't. His voice doesn't crack the way it did before. So in a way, he's not. He's he's a truthful, honest yeah. man. Well, he went back down, but then he he lost the infl- he, Like he emphasized it the wrong. Oh, the, the wrong syllable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just the thought he just went lower. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, yeah. Nevada. Nevada. Yeah. yeah. Uh, all right. So what do we have to talk about this week? So first, we're going to do a quick call with Patrick Rice. Right, my editor and former uh, Washington Post editor. Very excited to be speaking to Patrick Rice, who is Matt's editor. And I want to talk to him because I have a lot of complaints about Matt's writing. I'd like to take them up with him. Yeah. um, But I want it to be there. I want the chaperone the conversation. Yeah, exactly. Midwife it. But um, no, we want to talk to you about um, some recent Washington Post op-eds. And we wanted to pick your brain as someone who worked in the Washington Post uh, newsroom as an editor. Yeah, I used to uh, edit their economic coverage. One of the the better features of the Post is that people like Ruth Marcus and Fred Hyatt are sort of walled off on a different floor. Uh-huh. Uh, so, so I can't say I've ever interacted with the opinion page, but I have gotten to read it and roll my eyes many, many times. Yes. What about Jay Rubin? Yeah, I think maybe the funniest tweet I saw after the Bloomberg debate uh, was someone just asking that everyone check on Jen Rubin today to make yeah. sure she got out of bed. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> a, w- a welfare check. Yeah. reason we wanted to talk to you, uh, obviously... 
two amazing editorials this week, uh, one by Ruth Marcus and another by Fred Hyatt, who I knew back from his Russia days. Uh, he was the Washington Post correspondent in Russia and kind of had an interesting reputation over there. Came back, he became the Washington Post editorial page editor. Uh, what was your take on these editorials? So I found uh, the climate change one particularly revealing. Uh-huh. It's such a fascinating insight into the way that people of a certain set evaluate uh, policy in the world around them. Essentially, Donald Trump is outside of the mainstream. Bernie Sanders is out of the mainstream. Ergo, they're the same. Right. <laughs> Two sides uh, of the same coin. It's um, like a really useful stance to take if you want to be able to sort of launder your opinions as straight news and be right. accepted into this sort of cult of the sensible and savvy. But it's actually an extremely rigid ideology that masquerades as a non-ideology. Right. Because everything in it is evaluated on where it falls within the spectrum with zero regard for the on-the-ground effects of it. Like If you look at the Sanders climate plan, it would be a deep investment in renewable energy. It would require like a large-scale reshaping of the economy in an effort to stop us from cooking the planet in its own juices. <laughs> and if we fall short, you know, we, we turn the heat down some. Yeah. You know, climate change is somewhat mitigated. And possibly we pay a few cents more for gas or things like that. If you look at the results of Trump's action, it's that we pass our grandkids a hell world. And yet, because both those things are outside of the right. mainstream, they sort of belong in the same pod. It's it's amazing. I mean, it's 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 evaluating it entirely based on criteria that don't seem to have a whole lot to do with the actual particulars of the policies. It's also like you could compare one's extremely bad and one's extremely good. Like that does not make them equa, equally bad or good. You could say they're equidistant, like you were saying, from the mainstream, but one is actually a positive and one's a negative. Yeah, it's also telling about where you, which consequences you stand to suffer. Yeah, right. You know, you, you can treat something like this as sort of like, well, they both disturb the status quo. And for me and everyone I know and swap text message with and drink cocktails right. with, the status quo seems pretty sweet. Uh, the status quo seems less sweet if you live on the coast of Bangladesh or don't like hurricanes raining on you or all sorts of different things right. that, that real people who lack the resources to adapt to these things face in 30, 40, 50 years and right now. But it's also great because it's one of the issues that the quote unquote adults in the room claim to not be insane on, like climate change, right? This is something that people who claim to be at all enlightened and believe in science get. So it is quite a reveal that they would make this argument around this issue, as opposed to say, like, even with Medicare or even with taxes, that has less of a morally, like, alarming um, flair to it, I think. Right. The idea that it's both crazy to deny climate change's existence and to take strong action on it. Yeah, exactly. It's frustrating. What about the Ruth Marcus piece? This was one comparing... Trump, I'm uh, sorry, comparing Sanders and Bloomberg, they're both as wrong as they are self-serving. Uh, this was also a re- an amazing piece. Uh, w- what was your take on that? Yeah. Can you yeah, summarize it too for, for listeners? Yeah. Sure. So uh, the argument here is that uh, Mike Bloomberg believes that we should keep the rules of his non-disclosure agreements. And he says that and as part of helping his campaign, uh, because clearly when you're I'm not sure if I'm allowed to quote some of the things that he said, but when you're telling your female staff to line up and give a newly engaged guy blowjobs, that doesn't look great if you want to be the Democratic nominee. Right. Especially when you're running against Trump, as Meghan McCain pointed out. 
Right, right. When you've lost Meghan McCain, you... Yeah, <laughs> seriously. I do admire all the different people he's been able to bring together to dunk on him. Yeah, it's, true. Except it's for a Washington powerful Post. statement of unity. Right. So in that, he wants to follow the rules because it helps his campaign. Sanders, on the other hand, and a very similar hand apparently, believes that by getting the highest number of votes, oh he should get to be the nominee for the Democratic Party and that they shouldn't use these sort of special set of convention rules that could, in theory, have a brokered convention and have someone else get that nomination. Right. Those so, are two exactly similar things. Yeah. I mean, uh, I've looked at it for days. I just can't <laughs> find any differences. Me neither. Ugly, lesbian, what is it? Horse-faced lesbian. Oh, no, that he said out in the open about the royal family, yeah. about horse-faced yeah. lesbian. Right. But yeah, whatever he said about blowjobs, um, it's interesting because he said things that we already know about blowjobs, but but apparently he said worse things that are covered yeah, the by NDA, blow job the unknown blowjob commentary. Yeah, yeah. commentary. Um, but that's just so ridiculous. So the idea is that both of them want to follow. Wait, what is it? They both want to. F- I can't actually follow it. Yeah, they both want to uh, win the nomination is okay. effectively what it boils down to. Right. They both want the rules observed in or not observed in a way that helps okay. their campaign. Right. 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 So effectively. That would make uh, Bloomberg and Sanders and anyone who's ever run for office, uh, any human being with who pursues his or her desires and literally any living organism that tries to meet its own needs as <laughs> right. all cool. But yeah, again, the, the, these arguments are so devoid of content. They're so aesthetic. Literally, one of them wants to break the rules so that his sexual harassment of women is covered. The other one wants to break the rules because he believes in like popular will. And yeah, he is the four. No, he wants to follow the rules. It's telling. It's telling. That we like, can't keep track of it. We're all spraining our brains on the mental gymnastics. Right. Yeah. Bloomberg wants to keep the NDA rules because it helps him be a candidate. Okay. Sanders does not want them. He wants to break these convoluted uh, convention rules. You could argue if that really even counts as breaking sure, them. Sure, yeah. So much as, um, you know. Right. I have it backwards. I'm oh, sorry. Oh, wait. So, they the don't even, so one is yeah. pro-breaking and one is anti-breaking. Yes. So it's right. even. So but it's just both... that they both have self-interest. Yes. Right. Yeah. And, and Sanders' okay. self-interest happens to be in line with democracy. Okay. I, right. I, I have a great point here. Patrick, you're my editor, right? Okay. If I write something and I submit something to you and it's totally full of shit and incoherent, what happens? You recommend it to the Washington Post. No, no. <laughs> uh, I would send you an email. I mean, if you would have filed which, that. Which has happened. Yes. Yeah. And I'd be like, let's, uh, let's talk this one through a little yeah. bit. Right. <laughs> but you probably didn't lose all of your respect for Matt Taibbi the way you would have if you were Marcus's. No, but that's, or... look, I'm trying to put it. This, this is actually a thing that happens in right. this business, you know? Right. And, it's supposed to happen. Right. And then like, you're supposed pe- to have editors. Even, even, you know, even pretty decent uh, op-ed columnists, sure. Every on, now and then. Uh, you know, not infrequently write really stupid things. Right. And that's what we have editors for. Right. Yeah. It's interesting that something like this can fly through. It just shows like so that the set of eyes on it. If yes. there were an editor in the room who had ever considered, even considered voting for Bernie Sanders. Right. You might see a little pushback on this idea that climate denialism and a Green New Deal are actually the same thing. Right. <laughs> uh, similarly, I mean, I wish I had some sort of deeper way to explain how the, the Ruth Marcus, they're both the same because they're both self-interested one went through. Yeah. That but maybe it's just like a late night the night before. I really have no 
Well, right. I mean, again, you don't have to agree with the point of view, but your part of your job as an editor is to protect the writer from his or herself, right? right? Mm-hmm. I mean, isn't, isn't that part of the job? Uh, no, that, that column would have been best edited by a shredder. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Try again. I mean, everyone has a bad day. I've written, I've written clunkers myself, and people have just sort of kindly told them to send them to the glue factory, and that's fine. Yeah, and that's, that's a skill you develop in this business is letting down fragile egos easily, right? Yeah. 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 So uh, can I just read really quickly so people yeah. know how ridiculous, like it sounds like we're exaggerating how bad this Marcus piece is, but I just want people to know we're not. Literally, it says, each candidate, surprise, adopted the position most beneficial to himself. Bloomberg argued that his hands were tied because the parties to sexual harassment and discrimination lawsuits against his company had agreed to keep the settlement secret. Case closed, literally. Sanders asserted that the Democratic Party's rules should be ignored and the nomination awarded to the candidate with the most delegates, period. Both candidates, the one who wants to live by the rules and the one who wants to junk them, are wrong. That's, like, insane. I don't even understand. This is a stone moment, yeah. She goes, which brings us to Sanders' opposite yet similarly self-interested assertion. The rules shouldn't be allowed to interfere with my winning. She needs to fall down on one side. Either they both break the rules or they're both trying to follow the rules. Like, she is so, no, it's irrational. She's like, both of them want to win. One wants to follow the rules. One wants to break the rules. Ergo, they're the same. Yeah. At least pretend that there's some consistency to... Ergo, I'm 650 words through my column and I have 150 to go. And like a thousand drinks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Th- the, the kicker does have the strong, like, written in crayon energy. Yeah, it does. <laughs> Among the many things I find frustrated about this, is there real reporters at the Post doing real work? Right. I mean, if you look at the, the series that they did about, uh, you know, the wars in Iran, Iraq and Afghanistan. Yeah. The frightening slip. That's real journalism that serves the right. public, that gets things out in the open, that helps people understand, you know, the democracy that we're living in or lack thereof and take meaningful action on it. And when you bury you know, journalism of that caliber in just layers of nonsensical bullshit, it lets down the it lets down the institution as a whole. Well, that's what I wanted to ask you. Uh, I mean, I don't know how much you can speak to this, but is there dissension within the paper because I would feel if I worked on the staff of that paper and I was an investigative reporter or if I was often at a bureau in another country or um, I would feel so betrayed by like the lead foot of the opinion page right now because it's it's just overshadowing everything else that the, the institution does. Is that it? I mean, I can only speak to my personal experience. But what I found most useful was just to focus on the work. And, you know, there's a real subset of excellent journalists at The Post. And if you just read those day in, day out, it, it's a much kinder world to live in. Right. What do you think about when everyone made fun of Bernie Sanders for suggesting that maybe Jeff Bezos doesn't like him and that maybe that influences the coverage of the Post or the reporting of the Post? Because that's the scary thing is that there's one, it's one thing when you have like a Ruth Marcus or a Jennifer Rubin. It's especially great when it's Jennifer Rubin because this is a woman who spent her entire career up until now hating on Obama hating on abortion, saying Islamophobic things. So I really welcome her into the anti-Sanders resistance. But like, then you have articles. What was it? Like the, the Adam Johnson pointed this out. They were like, Six, however, crazy number of anti 16 yeah. in yeah. like eight hours or 16 and 14 hours. Like, there are also reported, quote unquote, reported pieces that are ridiculous. But what do you think? We, we actually showed um, this ridiculous CNN 
segment where Poppy Harlow struggled to read the teleprompter and had two guests on, one of whom literally said, when you have Sanders going after the standard that is the Washington Post, it's such a conspiracy theory that that Marty Baron himself calls it a conspiracy theory. That was the, I couldn't believe someone said that out loud. Literally, it's like, Wow, this was so. I, I have to recuse myself because I've ripped Marty Barron so much in the past. Okay, but, but yeah. I let's even. I think this is just a logic thing, kind of like Ruth Marcus should get that her argument should be that they both want to tear up the rules. Like I could write a much better piece of shit op-ed than she did, and, and Ruth, if you want to use me, I'll do it. But um, that to me was so hilarious. We both laughed at that when she was saying like. It is so outlandish, this theory that the Washington Post maybe has an anti-Bernie bent. It is so outlandish that the editor-in-chief thought it was outlandish. That's how outlandish it is. It's almost as if you wrote a whole piece about how Bernie Sanders' climate uh, policy is unreasonable. <laughs> and the main source you cited in it was the head of a massive oil and gas company. <laughs> yes, almost, yeah. That is a, a touch of the, the Fred Hyatt column that we sort of just glossed over a little bit, but it's not to be forgotten. Well, Patrick, thanks so yeah, much for, you, yeah. uh, for, for time. I know you're busy. You got to go back to, to uh, cho- chopping up somebody else's copy besides mine today. Yeah. So uh, really, really appreciate your taking it. You mean it. gently, gently caressing the beautiful prose of our staff. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's yeah. what I meant. I'm sorry. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that, that was the right. right version. Really appreciate it. Great fight this weekend. So great. Yeah, you watched the whole thing. Did you think it was going to go that long? I didn't know. No? I wish I'd planned better. I didn't plan my day out, my yeah. night or day. So who did you have your money on? Carl Lewis. <laughs> so obviously we were talking about the World Heavyweight Championship between Tyson, Tyson Fury, Fury and, and Deontay Mike Tyson, Wilder. And Deontay Wilder. <laughs> <laughs> Mike Tyson. Yeah, that was a while ago. I know, but I thought it was a Tyson on Tyson. What I meant is his Tyson Fury versus the spirit of Mike Tyson, which runs through him. It was basically like, was Mike, (laughs) did Tyson Fury beat Mike Tyson, after whom he's named? Did he do better than his namesake? Well, he did something equally as gross as Mike Tyson. He bit off someone else's ear. Well, he licked the blood off his opponent's neck in this. That's what I meant. That's what you were talking about. who won the battle of gross? Oh, right. Ear biter, was it ear or ear? ear, Ear biter Biter, or blood licker? Really? He bit the whole thing off? Not the whole thing. Oh, my God. Piece. Who was it? Who did he do that to? Evander Holyfield. Holyfield. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I you know knew who that. that is. Yeah. Evander Holyfield. Yeah. That was a moment of actual genuine knowledge. sports knowledge. Yeah, yeah. Kind of I thought it was him, but yeah, 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 I know. That reminds me of when the football player, soccer player, Suarez, I think, bit someone during a World Cup game. Really? I yes. did not hear of that. And it was the third. Here's what's scary. It's already awful, right? Then you discover... He'd bitten people two other times. This was his third bite. Wow. Like, that's not cool. To be fair, what he should have said, he has very big teeth. His defense should have been that, like, I just had my mouth open and ran into someone. And it's like an involuntary bite. Yeah, exactly. He kind of has those type of teeth. Anyway. Interesting. So I just taught you something you didn't know about. That is interesting. Yeah. Yeah. This this segment's kind of working in reverse Yeah, exactly. So let's go back to to that game. So uh, what happened fight. was, that's fine. <laughs> no, it's a game. It's a game of who... It's actually the sweet science. The sweet science, like that Sade song. Yes, or like boxing. Or like boxing, yeah. yeah. So what we had was we had the Evander Holyfield in this match was, of course... Deontay Wilder, De- who is no, nothing like Deontay Evander. No, Deontay Wilder was the... Wait, <laughs> hold on. What's the Tyson guy's name? Tyson Fury. 
Tyson Fury, right, and and Deontay Wilder. Yes. There's that. F first of all, you knew going into it, it was going to be very chaotic because it's wild fury. <laughs> right. Yes. It was a wilder fury than we'd expected. So what happened was you had Wilder falling down, right? Yes. He felt. Yeah. He was punched out. Yes, more than once actually. More than once. Fight. A yes. lot of times, but the, we're so, talking. One, I think one or two of them were slips, but yeah. One or two were slips, not clear. It's called a self-own when you do that, when you slip. Right. So then at one point, though, he does get knocked down, and he, because there was a friction between him and the ground, he cuts himself and bleeds. No, no the bleeding happened punched. when he got punched in right, the face. Exactly. Yeah, he got punched repeatedly, in the face yeah. repeatedly yeah. by the Fury. Right. And it, as if that wasn't bad enough, he then, the Fury then, licked his neck face. but it was like a bear tending it was a, a, a natural thing it was like a healing no thing. it was disgusting and 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 like aggressive did you hear wilder's excuse for why he lost because he lost his blood can we see the picture of deontay's costume so deontay wilder came into the, the ring with this insane costume it looks like godzilla with a crown yes and he said that the costume which weighed over 20 pounds uh, caused him to have heavy legs, and that was why he was sluggish in the ring, and that's why he got hit so many times in the face. It's in the realm of saying that my Twitter account was hacked. Right. Uh, I mean, I don't know. I feel like, what's heavy legs? Yeah, he, he, he wasn't moving down? quickly. Right. Like, you want to be light and limber in the ring. Right. But he, he might have thought more about the fact that he was a little bit too heavy, actually, for this fight. Oh, was he? Yes. He didn't sweat well, out. Well, I mean, he, he was just bulked up. He didn't, like, up. go on the... Bicycles and yeah, you should have a, you should have a sweat when you go yeah. into the ring. He didn't. He was, he was he was a schwitz. Yeah. Is that a thing? Yeah. Don't okay. You, yeah, the Russian baths. What do you think about the strategy in this fight? Did you like Tyson's Fury's strategy? I, mean, I think the strategy started off bad because he wore the heavy leg outfit. No, that was Wilder. I know Wilder <laughs> wore that. <laughs> I'm saying Wilder started out bad. I feel I th I don't I don't not believe that it gave him heavy leg syndrome. I think that. It's his fault, though. So I just think that it's it's he needs to take responsibility for his costume, his yes. wardrobe malfunction. Um, but I don't think that gives the other guy an out for licking his blood. Do we have footage of that? Looks like if he lands a good punch, Deontay will go down. Ew. He definitely he, doesn't look What was he just feet. doing with his tongue right there? He said, <laughs> I want to taste blood. Fury did it. He should never be allowed to play again. I, that's like not remotely the most disgusting thing that's ever happened in a boxing ring. I mean, How is a guy with such a big gut so portable? He's actually quite a good athlete uh, for his 271 pound. Where's he from? England. I don't like it. Not you don't one like bit. it? You're just you're not down with this whole thing? No. It was and, a great fight. And where's the other guy from? Uh, he's American. I'm not sure where he's from. He's from Alabama. He's a big puncher. He's a very undisciplined puncher though. Very open. Well, that's the thing. Know, he so. was too open. Yeah. He was too open and undisciplined. He was undisciplined about his outfit. That's so gross. Yeah. I do like the movie Creed, and I like Cinderella Man, which I saw on a plane. I get very scared by boxing movies. It's like an involuntary thing. And I was sitting next to someone on the plane I didn't know, and I kept like, like looking away from the screen and uh -huh. grabbing this guy who I didn't know, right. like grabbing his arm. Huh. Um, but I did like Cinderella Man, and I liked Left Paw. Southpaw. Southpaw. Right. But that's yeah. left-handed, right? Yes. Yes. See? Right. Yes. Yeah, there you go. Right? Left. Yeah. Left. Yeah. Yes. Why is that south? That is so messed up because we because of the rightocracy, the leftophobia. Like sinister means left-handed. Does it? Yeah, sinister. Sinestra in Italian, yeah. Uh, gauche. Gauche is left. Is French yes. and left, yeah. 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 Um, 
Why does the sure Southpaw the, have the to be? Etymology of Southpaw because is. like this is considered closer to God, the right. This is considered closer to the devil. Huh. That's why it's Southpaw. That's why I called it Leftpaw. But that was good with Jake Gyllenhaal. Yes. There's always a lot. Oh, and then Million Dollar Baby was so good. All right. Uh, should we talk about? Oh, your piece. Your piece. Well, let's just make it about the what happened last week. Okay, what happened last week? Tell us. What happened last week was, yeah, and I wrote about this in Rolling Stone, but uh, I was just absolutely coming? flabbergasted by the, the complete shamelessness with which the story came out about basically the, this this leak by people, quote unquote, people familiar with the matter, this ubiquitous character that's appeared for, throughout the last year or f- four years of Russiagate stories. They've used this kind of phrasing for sourcing for right. a huge percentage of these stories. In this case, people familiar with the matter uh, went to the Washington Post coincidentally a day before the Nevada caucus. Nevada. Nevada. Nevada, and said that um, that the Sanders had been briefed by officials that Russia was attempting to uh, help him in the 2020 election, and of course it subsequently comes out uh, that there are uh, other accounts of this that it's not entirely clear how they came about the conclusion that Russia wants to help uh, Sanders. So, well, it, it's a classic Russia gets story. The, part of it is true. The briefing happened. Right. But the other part of it is, you know, to me, clearly very questionable. And they dumped this out there in the clear hope that it was going to derail Sanders going into the Nevada caucus. Right. Which and, won handily. Yeah. And so what happens? Voters, they, they're, they're like, oh, yeah, that's nice, you know, you know. Fuck you, right. basically, right? They 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 voted. I mean, he could not possibly have won in more decisive fashion. They still think this story is going to stick, right. and all they've done is is further reveal the total. I don't know. This this story really upsets me for some reason that I I can't even grasp. But do you the, have strong feelings about RussiaGate, Matt? I do. I have very strong. It's it's so insulting uh, and so transparent at this point that um, you know I, I think it's it's finally running its course. Which you know? is more insulting and transparent, that or I was hacked? Uh, Actually, they go hand in hand because when Joanne Reed claimed she was hacked, wasn't it by the Russians? By Russians, exactly. You like, you know, again, and, and this story started, and, and it's important to kind of go really quickly encapsulate what this story was all about. You know, originally there were two really prongs to this. One was Russians hacked the DNC, and then they made the Facebook memes, and the other one was uh, Trump was conspiring with the Russians. Right. And that second part was the most important part of the story right. for three years. Because um, that was the collusion part, The right? collusion part Alleged of it. Collusion. But in the course of the story, they, they, they branched out into this whole other universe of propaganda where they started describing everything that was like basically not a conventional Democrat as a Russian asset. Right. You know, from the Gilets Jaunes, you know, to... Uh, Brexiters, uh, Tulsi Gabbard, Tulsi Gabbard to the the uh, protesters in South America and like multiple different South American countries, right. um, um, uh, African militias, uh, Jeremy Corbyn, Jeremy Corbyn finding out about the um, the attempt to privatize uh, the the health services. Ex- yeah, exa- exactly. All, all over the world, this stuff, and then throughout, and Black Lives Matter, right? Uh, right wing uh, movements, right. left wing movements, right wing websites, left wing websites. What was that masturbation meme that was like attributed to? Oh, there was a hotline where they they were, they were claiming Russians were were basically getting information about people by putting posting a masturbation hotline, right? Uh, and so they they got people freaked out about that. But at this point, it's so transparent. 
that they're just using this as a meme yeah. to kind of to defame any kind of dissident movement. Right. And and the, the other part of the story that was so clear is they're not telling us how they came about the conclusion right. that, that, you know, Russia's going to help Sanders or wants to help Sanders. It, it's and there were there were quotes that came out later that, oh, this is just our interpretation of the intelligence, which could mean anything. You right. Know? Of course. Yeah. And so this whole is just really frustrating. And it, it was very satisfying to watch the way this blew up, because I think the tide is kind of finally turning with this thing. The red tide. The red the pink tie, that's what they call it in Latin America. The pink America, tie, right? yeah. yeah. Latin, yeah. No, and the, the, the arguments they're coming up with, it, they're like, oh, Putin wants this because um, they want the United States to spend less on the military, yeah. and they think that if Sanders gets the election, like, we're already spending, like, the, America's military and defense spending is already, like, nearly equal to Russia's GDP. Right. Like, the idea that the Russians really, the Russians have been cutting defense spending for years, um, they're nowhere even remotely in the ballpark of where America is on any of this stuff. No, but to be fair, I mean, I obviously I think this is bullshit. But to be fair, isn't the argument like they don't want the U.S. to be militarily intervening and Sanders is less of an interventionist, so that would be good? Yes, that's probably yeah. that. That's I mean, probably true. But the, just, on the on the I'm spending just, front, yeah. it's it's absurd. Oh they're, well, because they're pretending that they're going to be overtaking us or something. It, it would take it would right. take a reversal of like Fortune. catastrophic proportions for Russia to even be anywhere in the ballpark of, how, of as strong as America is militarily, and that that's just they're not, not even in that inning. No, <laughs> right? Not even, inning. not even in Different that game, inning. Yeah. Yeah. Not, yeah, not even in that wicket. Well, what about the? Um, oh yeah. So can it, we, here's a really good insight from um, friend of the show, someone we'd love to come on the show, Chris Matthews, who remember already said that Bernie Sanders is going to execute people like himself in Central Park. What is going on here, and is this any way? to pick a nominee. Well, I don't think so, but uh, it's, it is the way we're picking this one, and it looks like Bernie Sanders is hard to beat right now. I was reading last night, Brian, I know you're a history guy too. I'm reading last night about the fall of France in the summer of 1940, and the general, Renault calls up Churchill and says, it's over. And Churchill said, how can it be? You got the greatest army in Europe. How can it be over? He said, it's over. So I had that suppressed feeling. I can't be as wild as Carville, but he is damn smart. And I think he's damn right on this one. Okay. Joy. All right. All right. First all right. of all, he says, I had that suppressed feeling, which in true Chris Matthews form he doesn't suppress. is an articulated yeah. comment. Yeah. yeah. So can you break this down for us as someone who studied history? Is this a way to choose a, a, a nominee by voting? Yeah, I don't know. Again, Call me crazy. Yeah, That's kind of what the system right. is. Uh, but the comparison of Bernie to the German army invading France. The Nazi German army. The Nazi German army. And I, again, I hate to make this all about Bernie I know, because but it's, it's not... It's not even that. I think you know, if we're looking at the like those Washington Post columns, right. it's just this is the way people who are within this yes, the bubble world or look, the, at, yeah, the look at anything. Right. And it could be it could be Bernie. It, it could, could be, be Trump. It even. could be Tulsi. Right. It could be Tulsi. It doesn't mean we're not equating those three politically. Also, no. But it I'm just, just saying. Some, but, the, yeah. but I'm saying it's they, a they totally irrational analysis. They yeah. are not able to look at this in right. any in any way right. except as you know the, some kind of insane right like, which is not even good if you hate the irony is even if you hate trump you can't be irrational about it if you want to defeat him so sanders whose family did flee the nazis um is like the nazis in this analogy 
which is so insanely offensive and so offensive his family was wiped out not only did his family flee but a lot of them were killed by the nazis but somehow his winning an election the rise of democracy when people vote it and high turnout winning every demographic that is a lot like nazis descending on on, yeah, uh, planting the flag in Paris. All this really, it's, it's, a, it's a presidential candidate is winning a caucus in, in right. Nevada. Which is a which lot is, like the, the rise of Nazism. It's nowhere near, I mean, between this and the paranoia about foreign invasion and foreign interference, right. it's, a, oh, it's, yeah, a mass, right. it's a mass psychosis. And it's so funny because he in the same thing, he goes, you know, Bernie, uh, it's going to be scary the way they're going to, the, all this oppo that they're sitting on. Um, and, and the things he said about the, the world stage and everything. It's like, first of all, you're doing that trick where MSNBC pretends that they are worried that the media is going to mention something, but they're actually mentioning it. We right. brought it up with, Sag- with Sagar and Crystal. Um, it's totally disingenuous, or it may just be psychotic and they don't know what they're doing, because again, he thinks he's suppressing his thoughts, but he's actually saying them out loud. But yeah, it's ridiculous. He did an apo- he did apologize for it, but um, I'm sure we can look forward to more ridiculous things. Yeah, it was amazing. Um, uh, really quickly, Stone, stone moment, moment from this yeah. week. This is a thing that's been circulating, okay. and I, what's, people have picked up on the fact that uh, Pete Buttigieg uh, has, seems to have a remarkable affinity for the, we, the mannerisms and phrasing. We picked up on that last week we when did. we have him speaking like Obama. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I yep, mean, he yeah. speaks like a, 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 an awkward Obama, but yeah. Right, and now now it's become even more overt. Yeah. So let's let's listen Someone to this. Someone did a good mashup on this. The way we when do we every other election by giving it to the person who got the most votes. <laughs> Just a thought. Brings us because together. This, now, country this country was, was built. And it is a movement cools. reaching into and church basements and barbershops and in our schools, into universities and, and with our kids. Halls. And if the boys we can change the neighborhoods and we can light up the city, shines as a beacon around the world. the world once more. And this, this is, is our, our chance, chance to, to answer that call. It's in the great tradition of white people uh, plagiarizing black yeah, people. Yeah, it's like uh, stealing rock and roll. Yeah, exactly. Right. He's like an uninteresting Elvis. Yeah. Basically. He's like a talentless Elvis. But the. But the amazing thing about this campaign cycle, in a past election cycle, this kind of thing would be fatal to a politician. Right. Not and now. Like plagiarism, because no. it's, it's essentially he's ripping off another. Like, yeah. like it's like a Neil Kinnock uh, thing, right? Yeah. And nah, nothing. No, it's just nothing. not even a thing. It's like a, it's like a bleep on right. Twitter now. So a blip, I believe. A blip, blip, yeah. Nevada. And All then, right. uh, and here's another stone moment. Here's Joe Biden. And you're the ones that sent Barack Obama the presidency, and I have a simple proposition here. I'm here to ask you for your help. Where I come from, you don't get far unless you ask. My name's Joe Biden. I'm a Democratic candidate for the United States Senate. Look me over. If you like what you see, help out. If not, vote for the other guy. Give me a look, though, okay? You're what the is ones- he saying? He's saying, I'm vote gonna, for me, or if you no, don't no, no, like no. me, vote I'm for the other I'm a candidate for the U.S. Senate. Oh, that part. Yeah. Oh, oh, okay. I didn't, but I was distracted by when he goes, look at me over, and if you don't like me, vote for the other Biden. Oh, yes, right. Yeah. Yeah. So he's a candidate for the U.S. Senate, and he's also running against Biden's. Yes. That's kind of narcissistic that he conflates candidates with Biden's. Yeah. Or it's a subconscious reference to how he, his nepotism was. Pretty his soon son. he's just going to go up there and, and he's just going to be like Biden, 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 Biden. Like that's going to be the suit, only word that comes the, out. In the suit that that guy wore, the Godzilla suit. Oh, the, the Deontay Wilder. Yeah. Can you imagine him uh, just coming out in that? He's going to come out heavy legged. Yeah, heavy legged. He- heavy legged Joe. Yeah. Golden, exactly. ha- golden hair, heavy legged yeah. Joe. <laughs> right, with his golden hair and yeah, his, on his he- heavy that legs. That gives him the heavy legs. It's the golden hair. The that was a good. That hair. was a good pullback. Yeah, it was, show. right? Pull. Right. 
on what that note, the hair, the leg hair, yeah. So let's uh, we'll figure out which one of those is the most dumb. I think they're yeah. all they're all yeah. kind of they're all yeah. kind of big. Uh, all right, let's go. Uh, let's talk to our guest. Yeah, great. Really excited to be talk to t- Felix Salmon, yes. one of the smartest people I know, a great expert on Wall Street. He's been uh, one of the chief financial correspondents in the city for a long time. Really plugged into all things fin- finance community, and we got a lot of questions for him. Yeah, and it's really nice that he swam upstream to join us. <laughs> Sorry. I, I have a feeling you're going to be a few fish puns. There may or may not be. May or may not be. We'll, we'll see. Yeah, we'll see. Felix Salmon. Yeah, you've, you've written a bunch about uh, Jeffrey Epstein, over, both Epsteins over the both course Epsteins. of the last, uh, last couple of years. Actually, beyond that, right? It, uh, my, yeah, I, I was vaguely aware of Jeffrey Epstein back when I was writing about his brother, but his brother, Mark, was the one I was kind of obsessed with. Because of the Cooper Union thing? Because he was the chairman of Cooper Union and more or less single-handedly destroyed it. Yeah. How did he do that? You Basically, Cooper Union owned the land underneath the Chrysler building, and he mortgaged it all off. And the thing about a mortgage, you may not know this, Probably is that not. it comes with interest payments. <laughs> and he had absolutely no conception of how he was going to be able to make those interest payments. But he took all of the money, poured it into a new building, and then couldn't make the interest payments, and then they were out of money. Like a, like a game of Monopoly? Like he, t- he basically turned the, the, the Chrysler building over and basically. mortgaged all that money and put it into something else? And, and put it into a, a massive, big, new engineering building that has no cash flows because it, all it does is house professors and students and the students don't pay any tuition, or at least they didn't before right. Mark Epstein came along. Wow. So he single-handedly brought that down, huh? Yeah. Pretty much. And th- he had the help of this um, guy, Jamshed, the, the, who was the dean who was running the university. But really, he just did what the board wanted him to do. And so you, you also, you're, you're, obviously, you cover finance. We're going to get into this. But uh, I've never heard anybody in the business ever say that they heard anything about Jeffrey Epstein actually making any trades. What did he actually do? It's not clear whether he made any Right, trades. yeah, exactly. Um, Have you ever he, heard any story about what he actually... There, there was a lot of stories about I don't see him in the market. He, a little bit might, like, do you remember the Bernie Madoff would talk about his, like, options strategy and how right. he could get, like, 10% a year with really low volatility through some option strategy? And everyone was like, that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> and we don't see him in the market. And if he has as much money as he has, and he was doing that strategy, he would be moving the market all over the place. Right. Epstein would wave his hands and talk about FX, but no one ever saw him in the market either. So I think what he did was tax optimization for billionaires and or other services for billionaires. Right. But um, in terms of being a magical investor, there's no evidence of that. Right. That's yeah. where I went to school, by the way, related. Brown? No. Harvard? No. Little school. MIT? High school. High school? Oh, Dalton. Dalton, yeah. Where he was a math teacher for what, like one year? Yeah, something like that. I didn't know about that until later, until friends told me about it. Non-Dalton friends, yeah. Yeah, so... He was, was my time. He managed to, a, a bunch of billionaires felt that they owed him favors, including Leon Black, who owns this massive private equity company, including Bill Gates, who gave right. a couple million dollars to MIT because Jeffrey Epstein asked him to. And to this day, we have no idea what kind of favors they felt that they owed right. him. Right, yeah. And we're never going to find out, doesn't look like, right? 
Well, I mean, the chapter isn't close, right? They yeah. haven't arrested Ghislaine yet. Right. So his, his right-hand consigliere, Ghislaine Maxwell, Robert Maxwell's daughter, right. because, I mean... And he yeah, died, like, naked so in a boat? He fell off a boat or he jumped off, off a boat. Or jumped off, We right. don't know. Ghislaine is he convinced... He was falling off a boat. Yeah. ...that he, um, quote, um, to, to, to coin the phrase, didn't kill himself. Right. Um, <laughs> but either, either way, he died under mysterious circumstances. Um, but, yeah, so she was involved in every aspect of what Jeffrey Epstein right. was up to. Real she feminist. knows what he did and she has been accused of like Doing raping women herself. herself. Right. Um, and so she and she's alive. Right. And the FBI knows where she is. So that shoe has yet to drop. What do they say behind every Great man, strong man is a strong woman. There's a daughter of a, of a media magnate yeah. who's connected yeah, to the Mossad. Exactly. Yeah. The, the interesting factoid about Robert Maxwell is I believe he was the fir- world's first ever negative billionaire. Is that, oh, in, in other words, he had that much debt? He, he was worth less than minus one billion dollars. Wow. <laughs> That's a pretty impressive accomplishment, actually. He was, in, on some level, he was the poorest person that the world has ever seen. I remember Trump saying that <laughs> about Trump himself, right? Yeah, that, yeah. I think it was like on Oprah or just on some no, talk he, he show. said it to his daughter about, right. he, like, they stepped over a homeless person yes. and they said, I, I have less money than yeah. that person, which yeah. was probably true, right? right? Yeah. On some weird, like, network he was basis. bankrupt right. or something, yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. What's up? So the Maxwells are also member, Jewish, right? Yes. Members of the tribe. What? It's terrible. We really have to do some PR on that. <laughs> Got Epstein, Maxwell. I shouldn't have said Maxwell because you can't tell from it. Like Epstein, everyone knows because the last name. Right. I just outed. I can't remember what his original name was. He was um, he was Polish. Right. And then he changed his Maxwell name to Maxwell Linsky when he moved yeah. to the UK. And your name, speaking of Jewish <laughs> was changes, Solomon. Solomon. Yeah. And your who? Where in the generations uh, did they change it? That was, I believe, early 20th century. Like before the First World War. Um, there was this guy, Lehman Glutzin. I can, can I plug a book? Yeah, of yeah. course. My, my cousin, Thomas Harding, has written this book called uh, Legacy, which is all about the Salmon and Glutstein family. And we were not the m- most prominent Jewish family in England in like the 18th and or 19th and 20th centuries because that would be the Rothschilds. Right, but thank gosh. probably thank in God. the top three. Thank you. And we had a huge catering operation and, and all manner of crazy things. And I discovered from reading the book, we made about, we manufactured about one third of the bombs that Britain dropped on Germany. In the wow. So wow. That, and so anyway, so, so it's called Legacy. It's by Thomas Harding. And if you're interested in English Jewry, which I'm yes, sure a lot of really listeners to, of this podcast are, that's the book to read. Legacy. Legacy. It's called. Legacy. Is that British jewelry in the subtitle? It, it has cup of tea in the subtitle because we 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 were big tea merchants. Wow. Wow. Cup Te- of kosher lion's tea. Lions tea. Going back how far? Like going to well, we started as as tobacconists. Okay. We had this thing called salmon and Gluckstein cigarettes, um, and then we sold that and then moved into tea and catering and hotels and that kind of stuff. So, were the, your your family was like, we're gonna bet that. Pescophobia won't be as bad as anti-Semitism. We're going to go with salmon. It was very odd. It was Solomon's, and then it was Solomon, and then it was Slowman, right. and then it was salmon. They just couldn't right. work out what they wanted to call <laughs> yeah. Luckily, salmon is a very well-respected are, fish. Are we done, though, at this point? Is oh, yeah, it salmon going forward? I, I feel like I've always had a you know little part of me that wants to change my name to Voyalodian Gahagnastiak. But, you know. Same. Gahagnastiak? <laughs> Yeah, that is a That's great a name. That's a great name. I don't, Halper is Wait, like... Wait, what's the first one? Voyalodian. Voyalodian Gahagnastiak? Yeah. Wow, all right. 
I mean, Mine's why don't we just do this interview with Voyager Voy <laughs> yeah, yeah, and Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we'll put down the title. So exactly. we're talking to the chief financial officer <laughs> of Axios, uh, Voyager. Correspondent. The, the chief financial co officer no, chief is, wow, is a very really problematic person. Anti-Semitic. Woke button, please. <laughs> yeah, my financial services terminology. That's a woke button in case you say anything problematic and you want to, like, excuse the, yourself. Is, is that like the, the papal... Yes, indulgent. Exactly. Just, I, get, exactly. I, get, I, get like, I get covered in woke. Yeah, yeah, yeah and we play yeah, wake yeah, me yeah. up. We play a very like, short wake me up before you go, girl. Oh, yeah. nice. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're to pr protective, so you're just mouth your mouth moves, but nobody hears right. the offensive things that you're saying. <laughs> yeah. so. Or a little muted, at least. Yeah. Yeah. So welcome, Valhelodian so cool. Gahadnastiak. Uh, that'll do. Or you can just call me Felix. Felix. Felix, or yeah. Felix Salmon, uh, Chief Financial Correspondent from Axios. Well, tell us about Axios. Tell us about working there. You and I go back a long way when you were at a different organization. <laughs> there, uh, there have been many, as most journalists do, except exactly. for you. You you kind of like come in and out of Rolling Stone, but this is your like spiritual. Right. Uh, yeah. It's like my bat cave. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> most of us just like flit around. But Axios is um, mostly based around email newsletters. That's basically how it started. Um, it was founded by this guy, Mike Allen, and some colleagues from Politico. The Washington Post, right? Um, and from, Politico, yeah. First, originally the Washington Post, then Politico, oh, and now and then, then they started Axios. And what we do is we, the idea is we get you smarter, faster. It's very high signal to noise. We tell you what you need to know. We don't tell you what you don't need to know. Signal Excellent. To noise. I like that. Did you read Nate Silver's book? I think it was the signal and the noise. That was, yeah, there was a lot of noise in that book. Right. It, it was, I mean, it was admittedly, storytelling. Right, right. If you write at book length, you need this thing called narrative. Right. And so that involves putting in a bunch of, like, extraneous stuff just to keep people wanting to read. But when you write, uh, we, we specialize in writing very short. Right. So there's almost nothing on the site, which is more than about four or 500 words. And so we can just give you the information and not need to worry about placing it into a narrative. So does that give you a, that probably is like very, very consumable and consumed, Bite sized. Right? Bite sized, yeah. Yes. And people like, I assume, I feel like that's something that 10 or 20 years ago wouldn't have done as well as it does today because of the way people get their news and read and, I mean, maybe yeah, it's a no, cliche it, We have definitely moved to a world of feeds of information which you can consume quite quickly. Yeah. But the thing that Axios really prides itself on is keeping all of the subtlety and all of this, you know, complexity of the world, just getting rid of the throat clearing and right. the other bullshit that you find everywhere else. We will never start a story with the sun rose above <laughs> the mountains, <laughs> yeah. like, you know. Yeah. That's and, what I do. And you don't do listicles, <laughs> right? A lot of, a lot of right? throat clearing. We don't do, we, don't, we, we have very few yeah. cat gifts. In fact, top 10 listicles from <laughs> Axios are, is it Axios or Axios? Sorry. Axios. Honestly, you can, we, we will take anything, okay. but, but just, Axios. Axi I say Axios, but I'm English, and so no, right. you know, I say lots of things which are weird. Also, I, Laborator I th laboratory? Aluminium. Labor, labor, uh, aluminium. Yeah. Schedule. 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 Lori. Exactly. Lou. Yeah, <laughs> Let's just do top 10 English. Top 10 Britishisms. Yeah. 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 Equalizer, I discovered, is an, a Britishism. Yeah, what I, does it mean? Like when you score the tying goal, that's the equalizer. Oh, yeah. I, I had no that? idea that was a Britishism. I did not know that. Well, now I know more than sp about sports than a lot of people. <laughs> Kind you, of. You Not don't really. Know this, but I when, uh, yeah. when Alex and I were starting Racket, one of our first ideas was just to have you say things and record it and like random words. Uh, wasn't there some like 
psychedelic substance involved? Yeah, yeah, we wanted, we wanted to feed you different drugs and just have Felix Salmon <laughs> saying things uh, and just have it be a regular feature on the website. Salmon says. Salmon says. Let's Salmon do says. it. That would be great. Yeah, yeah and I'll just say schedule. And then schedule. I'll say schedule <laughs> while, like, tripping out on that. Yeah, yeah like, exactly. Yeah. Schedule, schedule, yeah. <laughs> uh, so I thought this would be a great uh, opportunity to just talk about all things Wall Street since, you know, you're one of the smartest people I know on, on this topic. Uh, you've written about a lot of stuff in the last year or so that is really super interesting and connected to the campaign. But uh, the first thing I want to ask about, you wrote about Mike Milken. For millennials who don't know who Mike Milken is, who is he? What were junk bonds? Why is Trump's, why, why is this commutation uh, important with the pardon? So before there was high yield, there were junk bonds. Mm -hmm. um, there was, so Mike Milken more or less invented these things as a financing mechanism. Also Jewish? Sorry. And he worked very closely with a bunch of Jews, like Leon Black and David Solomon, and who now runs Goldman Sachs. Right. No um, relation. But no relation to me. Um, well, who knows, maybe. Probably, yeah. Um, the thing that he did was he found this paper which some academic at Chicago had written saying when companies get their bonds downgraded, the price of the bond falls a lot, which means, according to bond math, that the yield of the bond rises. You get the, the coupon on the bond, the interest that the bond pays is a higher percentage of the price right. of the bond, and the price goes down. It's betting, betting on a horse that uh, has worse odds. Exactly. You get a higher, higher payoff. You get a higher payoff. And the, what this Chicago professor discovered was that the higher payoff is so much higher that even though a bunch of these companies end up defaulting on their debt, it's still worth buying those bonds and you still wind up making more money in the end. Mm -hmm. um, because the return outweighs the extra risk. And so Mike Milken goes, well, one way I can make money is just buy a lot of these um, junk bonds and they pay lots of interest and I can make money that way. But a much more interesting way of making money would be to find a bunch of companies that need to borrow money but can't issue debt at investment grade credit ratings and say, well, hey, just issue the debt at junk credit ratings. Say, I have a really high probability of default. Lend money to me anyway. <laughs> this is the original subprime lending. Exactly. That's why I wanted to talk about this. Yeah. And so he and so all of these companies which wanted to borrow lots of money, mostly because they wanted to borrow to take over some other company. It was a big M&A Right, Gordon Gecko type stuff. Exactly. Mm -hmm. um, they all came to Mike Milken and said, yeah, I need, so if, you know, if, if um, you know, when there was that big fight over RJR Nabisco and who was going to buy that, they, everyone was funding their bids with junk bonds. Mm -hmm. And these investors would all, would all come in because Mike Milken knew them all and would say, yeah, I'll buy billions and billions of dollars of these junk bonds because even though I know there's a good chance of them defaulting, the interest rate is so high, I'm going to make lots of money anyway. Right. And, um, the fact is that there was a bit of shenanigans going on behind the scenes. Um, there was a bit of insider trading going on behind the scenes. There was this famous guy, Ivan Bosky, who went to jail for, you know, a while for insider trading, very close to Mike Milken. The arbitrageur, right? Yeah. And, and, um, and, he, and there was also, and Mike Milken eventually wound up pleading guilty to um, a couple of, like, relatively minor um, it was a plea deal in the end. But what he was doing was effectively making sure that his friends' bonds never defaulted while other sort of like pension funds or whatever wound up 
you know, suffering right. the, the friends consequences. Friends don't let friends' bonds default. Exactly. Mike Milken winds up going to jail. Um, he winds up paying uh, like $300 million fine, something like that, which if you're Mike Milken, you can basically find down the back of the sofa. He comes out <laughs> of jail a billionaire and incredibly well-connected. He's a little bit like Jeffrey Epstein mm. in that he makes a lot of friends of very rich and powerful people. And so then he proceeds to embark upon a multi-decade campaign to clear his name. And one way he clears his name or tries to clear his name is by reinventing himself, not as a disgraced financier, but rather, rather as a grand philanthropist. And so he starts doing lots of stuff around um, developing communities and, as well, right? Exactly. And, mm-hmm. and, and, and another way he tries to clear his name is literally by finding all of his rich friends and getting them to lobby the president to give him a pardon. <laughs> and he tried this with Bush and he tried this with Obama and he tried this with all manner of different people in different ways and none of it ever worked because why on earth would you pardon Mike Milken until... Trump was like, oh, that's a good idea. I'll give him a pardon. Uh, amaz- they, unbelievably good idea. Amazing did they know each other idea. back in the day? I think so. We definitely know there's a video of Donald Trump and Leon Black right. together in Moscow. And no one knows entirely why they're hanging out um, around the conference table in Moscow. Huh. Um, but... If you look at the people who lobbied for the pardon, it includes people like Rupert Murdoch, right? Um, because Milken would fund the junk bonds that fueled the growth of News Corp back in the day, right? If you're going to do things like buy Fox, you need a lot of money, and Mike Milken is there to just give you that money. Yeah, I mean, he was really a symbol of all the excess and shenanigans that went on in the '80s. I mean, just par- pardoning him just had such—it was just such a symbolic move. I thought of Trump to do that—an uh, incredibly symbolic move, um, and and hugely. The, the symbolism was not lost on anyone. Right. Wall Street cheered this not because there were a bunch of them are friends of Milken. I mean. A bunch of them are, but you need to be a certain age to have worked with Milken back in the 80s. The signal that it sends is absolutely unambiguous. It's like, you can go ahead and do exactly what Mike Milken did in the 80s, and far from prosecuting you, we are going to celebrate you. Right, yeah, exactly. How did he leave jail a billionaire? Does that mean because he was a multi-billionaire before, or he was... Oh, many ma- times over, yeah. Like, but, so he, he paid he himself $525 million in one year. Right, okay. And then he was investing... Okay, so he just kept all the money he, he kept. He kept all of the money except for the three hundred million that he paid in fines. Got it. Yeah. Right, right, right. Back, uh, back of the couch change. Yeah, right. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. You, you've written a lot about Bloomberg, who also had a similar. I mean, he's nowhere. He's not Mike Milken, obviously, but his attitude toward philanthropy and as as a way to sort of build up his name was similar. But he, he uh, you wrote a column that I thought was really surprising that a lot of people wouldn't uh, think was true of Bloomberg is that his. His war on Wall Street, his proposals. I want to ask you what you think he's really he's really talking about. Do you do you believe that he really intends to do these things if he becomes president? He's talking about raising sharply raising capital requirements, right? The ending the speed limits and enacting speed limits, and um, putting a financial transactions tax, post office banking, which, post is, a, office which banking is a Bernie idea, right? Amazing. Yeah, um, yeah. Like it's a very wonkish, very kind of Elizabeth Warren esque. Um, wish list Mm -hmm. for the financial industry. And it involves basically everything that Elizabeth Warren would want, 
Um, plus a couple of ideas that I think even she is, you know, I haven't seen her go on about like massive, you know, significantly increasing bank capital ratios. Um, the only thing he doesn't really have is breaking up the big banks. Right. Um, well, will that end racism? <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> uh, so, but as a financial reform wish list, um, it is very, very progressive. We have recently heard audio of Mike Bloomberg saying something very different in private a few years ago when he was much friendlier with bankers and saying that he didn't want to crimp their style nearly as much as he seems to want to now. Um, there are two possibilities here. One is that he has had a genuine change of heart, and the other one is that he would get into office ostensibly with this wish list of grand things that he wanted to do on Wall Street, but in practice it wouldn't be a high priority, and most of them would never happen. I have to add that even if you're Elizabeth Warren and you really care about this kind of stuff, it is incredibly hard to pass anything like this through Congress, as right. Obama found out. You know, he had a majority of both houses, and Dodd-Frank was still kind of weak tea. Right. Yeah. And what Bloomberg wants goes way beyond Dodd-Frank, right. way beyond Dodd-Frank. So, you know, even if he had all of the fire in the belly of Elizabeth Warren, it's not clear that he could pass this. But And, and I, I don't think he does. Really. So does that mean, so that's more evidence that it is just an optics thing and a politically savvy thing as opposed to a change of heart? I mean, isn't that what presidential politics yeah, is, I think, though? Yeah. I, mean, I mean, like, pre presidents can't write legislation. They can't just wake up one morning and say, hey, you have Medicare for all. But that doesn't mean that it's stupid to run on a platform sure, of Medicare right. for all. But like, I mean, not that we need to do psychoanalysis of candidates, but obviously Sanders both believes that, right? Like in his soul, he believes that's the right thing to do. And it's become a politically, actually somewhat politically viable thing um, to embrace on some levels at least. But like with Bloomberg, you know, he probably doesn't believe this stuff and is running on it, right? Is that it's hard what? to say. It's just that w I thought it was interesting because after, I remember when Occupy happened, Bloomberg was so um, unambiguous that I remember he, he said that the financial crisis was not caused by the banks. He said it was caused by Congress forcing people uh, to lend on the cusp, the people on the cusp. Oh, the, that was, the whole, like, this, this complete fallacy that the financial crisis was caused by this thing called the Community Reinvestment Act, yeah. which it 100% was not. I mean, right. there's no doubt about yeah. that, but he bought into that. Um, what is interesting, though, is that after Occupy, he set up this little shop first in his townhouse on the Upper East Side, and then he moved it down to the, the bigger Bloomberg Borg called Bloomberg Opinion. Hmm. And Bloomberg Opinion was explicitly charged with basically being an editorial page for what Mike Bloomberg believes. There was never any suggestion that this wasn't Mike's personal right. view. This was Mike's personal view. And Bloomberg Opinion then hires Mark Whitehouse, who's now working on the Bloomberg campaign. Former, former colleague of mine. And Mark Whitehouse writes a whole bunch of pieces about higher capital ratios and all of the kind of things that, you know, progressives love. And, and that was done with more or less the explicit approval of Mike Bloomberg. So that's, it's, it's hard to say, right? I so mean, it's hard to say. Yeah, that's really, really interesting. Uh, I want to get into more Bloomberg stuff, but um, you wrote a little bit about, uh, I think it was Goldman's head of the Asia division, got banned for life recently. Well, Goldman is in the middle of 
a major, major scandal. Right. One MDB, right? You want to so, tell people about what One MDB so is? So One MDB. So, like the the two big scandals, corporate scandals of recent times, were, were Theranos and One MDB, and one of them was American, and one of them was not American, and. Weirdly, everyone in America seems to have glommed onto the American one right. and is obsessed by it. And 1MDB, which is a much bigger scandal in most ways, um, you know, which immiserated millions of Malaysians and is just a blatant case of extreme corruption abetted at every step of the way by Goldman Sachs, this doesn't seem to have received nearly the same amount of public attention. But it was a multi-billion dollar fraud on the Malaysian people, which could never have happened if you didn't have Goldman Sachs in there issuing these bonds. Um, well, for and, people who don't know what yeah. it was, could you just sort of outline what? So basically, um, to oversimplify a little bit, you had the prime minister of Malaysia and this yeah, another rogue financier, this time not Jewish, called Joe Lowe. Joe, Joe Lowe, who's one of the great characters of all time. This guy's amazing. we got to say his name like a hundred times. Say um, his name. He's like the Asian Gatsby sort of. He yeah, is yeah. very much the Asian Gatsby. And he basically... So he sets up this thing called the Sovereign Wealth Fund. And the way that sovereign wealth funds work is that when countries have lots of money, because normally from oil, they take the oil proceeds and they put them in a fund and then they invest the fund in things. Malaysia didn't really have much in the way of oil, so instead of taking a bunch of money which it didn't have putting in the fund, they borrowed a bunch of money on the international capital markets and put it on the fund. So they just got the Malaysian government to borrow all of the money, put it in the fund. Then, of course, the first thing you do is you steal all the money from the fund. (laughs) And that's basically it. Yeah, it's 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 a modern take on basically every third world uh, scam ever, right? Like, right. so typically you might have the the dictator who sells, who steals all the proceeds of sugar sales or oil sales. Well, the or classic whatever. one is the Mozambique tuna bonds. <laughs> I didn't ever oh, heard of this. Wow. You haven't heard of the Mozambique well, that tuna hit bonds? Well, home as a salmon. So, right? Exactly. The, the Mozambique tuna bond. Mozambique was this tiny country and issued this huge euro bond on the international capital markets in order to be able to. Um, Finance a tuna fishing fleet, and then again, all the money just got stolen. But the point about these bonds is you can't issue the bond unless you have an investment bank issuing the bond for right. you, underwriting yeah. the bond. And, you know, when Goldman Sachs, I used to cover debt capital markets for emerging market countries, like the fees that big banks charge to underwrite these bonds are tiny, tiny slivers. They're like, you know, a couple million dollars at most. Tiny money. Um, Often just a couple hundred thousand because they want the relationship with the government. And in the case of the corrupt bonds in Malaysia, the fees that Goldman Sachs were charging were like $600 million. And you're like, they knew something was fishy. It's like like if you're getting... Sorry, Sam and Tuna, you'll see. I do this all the yeah, time. This is a, yeah, she's, she's quick with the my puns. My dad, my, my, make my dad very proud with me. Yeah. <laughs> but it was, it's like a massage where if it's 5000 you know you're getting more than a massage, right, if the price is that high. I, right, remember, I remember going to uh, um, a breakfast place in Indonesia once where they had a series of omelets, and it was like one was like 25 cents, one was 30 cents, one was 40 cents, and one was like $7, and it's like, fly me to the moon special omelet. You're like, okay, I know that one's qualitatively different from the other one. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, so this was the special omelet. 
Uh, and they're going to, Goldman is in serious trouble with this thing, right? They're going to end up owing an enormous amount of money. Definitely maybe. billions. Well, billions. you can't make an yeah. omelet without breaking a few eggs. Malaysian, Malaysian. Yeah. Malaysian eggs. Yeah. yeah, without breaking a few Malaysians. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Millions. Brilliant, yeah. Do you think it had anything to that that was part of the reason that Lloyd stepped down? Or do you, do you, you can just say his name. We know he's Jewish. Lloyd, fine, <laughs> fine. It's fine. Yeah. The cat's out of the bag. Sorry. But he, you know, well, I mean, there was, if you read the reporting, and there's this great book called Billion Dollar Whale all about this scandal. Um, it's not clear that Lloyd Blankfein was super involved, but it does seem that Gary Cohn was super involved. Right. So that Will doesn't make it any less Jewish. C O E N, the German. No. <laughs> like on Curb Your Enthusiasm, Larry thinks he's adopted by non by Jews because he thinks their name is C O H E N. Then he, then it's C O E N. It turns out oh. he he's a non-Jew anyway. Yeah. 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 He, he so the uh, but they at least met Cohn, right? Low at least met. Cone, Joe Lowe met Lloyd Blankfein. To, yeah, that's right. Yes. yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, different arms of the bank were more or less willing to deal with him. Like the wealth management arm was like, we want nothing to do with this guy. But the right. debt capital markets arm were, hey, this guy's bringing in hundreds of millions of dollars in fee income. We love him. Right. I grew up, by the way, not to be a total stereotype, after having admitted I went to Dalton, but I grew up in the building that. Um, the blank finds lived in, and my dad, in some kind of subconscious class warfare, I think, um, he's like a real absent-minded professor type, and he would come home from work and draw a bath and fall asleep, and so he flooded their apartment a couple, <laughs> like at least twice. Yeah. So he's getting back at you. Yeah. Exactly. Did they end up moving? They did. They. This was. I don't know if this is like not kosher to share, but we were on Riverside Drive, and then they moved from Riverside Drive to Central Park West. They moved on up. Well, speaking of Lloyd moving towards Trump, what did you think of his pronouncement last week? He did a lunch with the FT, with, oh, the, or the Bernie tweet. Yeah, was, yeah, yeah, the one where he's basically saying, he's expressing his preference if, if, uh, if oh, Sanders. Oh, what did he say? I, I don't remember the so exact he did, quote. He did an interview with Ed Luce at the FT, and he, he didn't quite express a preference, but basically Ed said, if it came down to Trump versus Sanders, which one would you vote for? And... Lloyd said, I would find it hard to vote for Sanders. Oh, okay. I might wind up voting yeah. for Trump. So not a I thought it was going to be a surprise. I got, but I would have expected that. I don't, I don't know if I would have expected him to admit it, but I would have expected him to go into the, to yeah, and his, his longtime number two, Gary Cohn, was in the Trump administration for what, over a year? Right. Yeah. Although Trump did do commercials using Lloyd's face uh, as, a, as part of the message against Hillary Clinton. Oh, uh, right. And he, he, he blasted Goldman as part of during his campaign against Ted Cruz. But, you know, and then, and then he hires Gary Cohn and Steve Mnuchin, who's right. also Goldman connected. Right. Yeah, there were like six of them, weren't there? Yeah. There yeah. always are. Yeah, yeah. I can't remember the last time there's been an administration without a bunch of Goldman alumni floating around in there somewhere. Yeah. That's it, why they call it government sex. <laughs> it, oh, sh it should yeah. just be a permanent position. There should just yeah. be like a, a, like a, Goldman a department of Goldman yeah. or something like that, where they just you know, are spread through the government. Goldman in chief. Yeah. They have a new logo, by the way. Do they? Yes. What, what does it look it? like? It looks like exactly the same as the old logo, except for the tiny, tiny serifs, and they've got rid of the ligatures. Wow. So they're like streamlining. 
hmm, that's interesting. It's, yeah, yeah. I, don't, I don't quite understand it. It's like when BP made their green-friendly logo, oh right? Yeah. I kind of like the green-friendly BP logo. It makes me feel like they're a little bit less evil. Yeah, right. yeah. When you get their gas. You know, you Whereas like Exxon, it's like this big club which is <laughs> coming at you. With like a seal? Yeah. Coming towards a seal or something? I feel, yeah. yeah. Uh, so you, you interviewed Bernie in, what was it, 2015, right? Yeah. Uh, and I, I thought you wrote a lot of really interesting things about his ideas about reforming Wall Street, uh, which ones were sort of rooted in a, a keen understanding of what was going on <laughs> and which ones weren't. Can you talk about that interview and whether you think that he's, his views have changed or become more sophisticated in the last four years? And what do you think about what his proposals going forward? If Mike Bloomberg has Mark Whitehouse, you know, Bernie has people like Matt Stoller and Stephanie Kelton and, you know, smart people who know what they're talking about. And so if you go to the Bernie campaign and you're like, what's your position on capital ratios? They will tell you, you know, mm -hmm. or, or what's your position on, um, you know, any particularly abstruse part of financial regulation. They, they're totally on top of that. So, so Bernie himself is not by any means, by any way, any way, shape, or form, a policy wonk. Mm -hmm. Like he does not right. nerd out on policy. He he doesn't nerd out on the policy in the way that Bloomberg does. He doesn't nerd out on policy in the way that Warren, Warren does. does. Yeah. He basically nerds out on policy in the way that Trump does. He has like he knows two things, right. and he will tell you those two things. And if you ask him anything else, he will somehow manage to not answer the question and just tell you one of the two things that he knows. <laughs> one of them is um, something, something millionaires and billionaires. Yeah. And then the other one is like... In the richest country in the history of the world, <laughs> we should be able to pay for. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so he has, he has um, smart advisors, and I think he is more willing to listen to those advisors than, say, Trump right. is. But he personally... Um, wouldn't know a tier one cocoa bond if it hit him in the face. Right, right. Or he does have more of a history, like, I mean, obviously you're not equating them, but he does have a, you know, he loves Eugene V. Debs, right? He has like a nerdiness, not a wonkiness, but he has like a socialist Jewish historical. Right, yeah. so when it comes to politics, he's yeah. much more um, up to speed. Right. But yes, he's not um, but a one. when it comes yeah. to policy, right. not quite so much. You know, and having worked with his office a lot over the years on kind of Wall Street-related stuff, so, sometimes he'll say things that, like, that were the, his heart is clearly in the right place, but it's not how he arrived there is not always 100% clear, or it's not always right. clear in his mind even. So, like, for instance, his ideas about rating, ratings agencies, like he wants to make them nonprofits, right? <laughs> and that doesn't really 100% solve the problem. Right, uh, and I think you wrote, you wrote the, about some of this too. The, yeah. yeah, the the ratings agencies problem is. I mean, apparently the SEC came out like today and said like we need to do something about this ratings agencies problem because they, they tried to do something. They were like, the ratings agencies should rate bonds even if they're not being paid to rate them. That'll solve the problem. And then the ratings agencies didn't rate the bonds, right? Which they weren't being paid to rate, and so that didn't work. They're like, shit, we're gonna have to come up with something else. Um, yeah, and so maybe Bernie, you know, spoke to someone once and they said, let's make them a non-profit. If they don't have the profit motive, that'll work. If it won't work. But, like, yeah, you, it's not something that he's going to spend a long time, you know, ruminating on before coming up with. But, I mean, his, like, even there, his instinct's in the right place. There's a problem with the ratings agencies. Yep. You know, the issuer pays model doesn't really work, right? They're... they're yep. They're giving the, the ratings are being created by people who are paying for the. I mean, the people who are paying for the ratings are are the ones who are getting the ratings, right? Which 
doesn't work, you know, uh, and we saw that in 2008. Uh, I think, you know, similar with Too Big to Fail, you know, like he, he, he I think probably bre breaking up the banks is one of his ideas, and I think it's a good idea, right? Would you agree? I, I, I feel like at the margin it's good, but don't kid yourself that it solves Too Big to Fail, because if you take a $2 trillion bank and you break it up into two $1 trillion banks, those two $1 trillion banks are both still too big to fail. So, right. break, so we got to break up the banks more. But even then, I mean, I think you brought up the example of the SNL crisis. It still doesn't 100% solve the problem of kind of massive responsibility. It helps, right? right? Uh, I mean, yeah, exactly. Most of the SNLs, in fact, all of the SNLs were small enough to fail, but it was still a major systemic crisis. Uh, meanwhile, I mean, Lehman Brothers was tiny. Hmm. And we saw what happened when that one failed. Right, and there the issue wasn't so much how big Lehman Brothers was, but how interconnected, right? Exactly. And so that it doesn't necessarily solve the problem. But um, did you, have you seen any evidence that he's changed, Bernie's changed or become more sophisticated about any of these things like in the, in the last four years? No. No. Have okay. you? Um, I don't know. I mean, I think they, they, they spend a lot of time on it. I think that it's... I mean, he does have a, he, the one thing that he has now is, you know, five years worth of campaign contributions and resources to be able right. to throw at policy um, employees and white papers and that right. kind of stuff. So when you're just getting started, you need to be writing those things. And then once you've written those things, they just get more and more voluminous and detailed. So naturally, over time, your campaign's positions are going right. to start filling out and become becoming more sophisticated. The candidate himself, right. I'm not so sure. The whole how are you going to pay right. for it question makes me want to like crawl under a table and scream. Yeah, but why? why? I just, I, it is... It is the least illuminating right. question of any debate. It's You'll, also it, never. A, it's also so selectively applied. Like people aren't like, "How are you going to pay for this military?" Well, they are. I mean, like you know, or, or there's the Trump tax cut, which is like a trillion dollars right there. How are you going to pay for it? Well, he's not. You know, right? But, <laughs> <laughs> but it's something where where you. Um, it's basically a way of just saying, don't have any bold plans because there's this pay-for question. When, in yeah. fact, of all of the genuine crises that have hit this country over its entire 200-plus year existence, like none of them have been a function of, we did something and we couldn't pay right. for it. Right. Oh, no, right. it turns out we spent too much money and now we can't pay right. it. Like, that never happened. Right. So Fighting the Germans right. or yeah. whatever. Right. Yeah. Thanks, yeah. To, thanks in part to his, his family. His bombs, yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, but, right, that is why I think that um, it's worth, I mean, I think one of the things people like about Sanders is that he kind of, he, he, the details come after, which he, I think, admits to. I mean, he, he embraces that part, right? He has, like, his, his, um, his analysis comes much more from a moral outrage point of view. Right. Like, we know we can pay for it. We'll work that out. But I'm going to talk about how outrageous it is or how unfair it is. Or well, more to the point, we're never going to have to actually right. pay for medical, Medicare for all because it's never actually going to pass two houses of Congress. And so can I please just have this as a platform that I'm running on rather than some technocratic, like, you know... Washington insidery, what gets through committee thing, but or as a goal or as an right. ideal too. Yeah. But don't certain things that we think of as not politically 
viable like it's you have to start out ahead of the curve right and making demands that people think aren't going to yeah, ever happen yeah all this overton window stuff yeah, yeah. right uh, I, I made a pledge never to use that phrase. But so said it was, it, just just said last it. episode, I'm gonna so. have to tra yeah. trap you. I'll be like, "What does that say right there?" <laughs> It'll be like over, and then I'll be like, "What's that?" Like ton. <laughs> it's a ton of and something. Can you open that thing? Up? Once I was interviewing Matt before we started this, just on my show, the Katie Helper show, and um, I heard some noise. I was on my laptop, and I I like opened a window, and I was like, "Oh, so sorry. I just opened a window. Sorry that made that noise. It was like a commercial, you know." And he's like. Oh, okay. The heat, you realize like two seconds later, you're like, I thought you, I'm so old, I thought you meant a physical window. Like not on a website, yeah. So yeah. I could have just. You opened yeah. a, me a metaphorical. Yes. A metaphorical yes, I, electronic yeah. window. Yeah, exactly. Wow. Yeah. Um, well, Into his soul. What do people on Wall Street think of the Sanders movement or Sanders? And what, what's the, what are people saying about this election? Is there apprehension, amusement? Uh, do they, is there so genuine concern? Because I remember during Occupy, I did talk to people who were like genuinely wigged out by the whole thing. Yeah. Uh, but this, you know, is that scaled up, it feels like to me, yeah. a little bit. Less friends. Yeah, you're right. I mean, you're absolutely right that in, logically speaking, if you're wigged out by Occupy, which was a bunch of like hippies in a square on in Zuccotti Square in Manhattan, and that was it. Right. Imagine what millions of grassroots voters right. voting for Bernie should should terrify you. But it doesn't seem to have scaled that way. It's not on their doorstep in the same way. And maybe I feel like it's a little bit like coronavirus that they know they probably ought to be scared in theory <laughs> but in practice they kind of just yeah whatever so I think that in terms of rhetoric and policy Bernie is absolutely the kind of candidate that Wall Street hates yeah. and so is Warren and if you believe his policy position so is Bloomberg for that matter um, right. on the other hand so was Trump like, we forget that right. all of Wall Street was terrified of a Trump victory. Everyone said the stock market would plunge by 25% in the event of a Trump victory. Everyone was like, we can't enter into these trade wars and stop immigration and all of these things which keep the economy going. And it's, he's going to destroy the economy. And then he gets selected and stocks go up. And you're like, okay, no one knows anything. How, how did, oh, sorry, just question them. Um, mm -hmm. How, like, historically, pre, pre, pre-Bloomberg's plan that seems a little bit like off-brand for him. How different are he and Trump in terms of what, they, what they've done about, said and done about Wall Street? Like they're different obviously and social policy, Although, honestly, Trump is not as reactionary as he pretends to be. Well, no, he, he didn't run that way in 2016. He, he ran as, well, he as ran a populist like enemy of Wall Street. Right, but he, I'm going to drain the swamp. You know, with Goldman, right. he's like, I know these guys. I know how to handle right. them. And he ran anti-foreign intervention. But he also ran anti-choice and anti-like trans. And I don't think he cares. I, don't, I think he's probably pro-choice for self-interested reasons. And I just don't think he's a social reactionary. He kind of ran as, mm -hmm. but, and, and obviously one of Bloomberg's things is he presents himself as like good on climate and friend of, the, of gay ice, consumer of big gay ice cream. Right. Um, but how different are they historically on Wall Street? So their views of Wall Street are radically, radically different. Bloomberg used to run equity sales at Salomon Brothers, which was this very um, 
hard-charging, aggressive, um, small SG investment bank. Um, and then he set up Bloomberg LP, his financial information company, and he dealt with all of the traders who needed lots of bond pricing information, and he sold them that bond pricing information for $20,000 a year, and he made billions. And it's really the core heart of what Wall Street does. He's deeply embedded in it, and it's where he made, has made all of his money. And the profits of Bloomberg LP are billions of dollars a year, and they all just go into his pocket, and they all come from big banks, basically, in Wall Street. Trump has a completely different conception of Wall Street. Trump's conception of Wall Street is basically, I know the head of wealth management at Deutsche Bank, and she can get me a loan to build a hotel in Russia or something like that. It's, it's just a tiny little corner of, right. of the banking industry that's important if you're Donald Trump, but isn't systemically important and is not really, does not really reflect Wall Street as a whole. Yeah, I mean, Bloomberg is fundamentally connected to the business at every level. He's also just financially, there's no comparison between the two, the two characters. I mean, you know, Bloomberg is worth $60 billion, right? right? And this is an awesome amount of money that he's making. And, you know, Trump is, Trump is a relatively small figure. Yeah. Bloomberg's uh, annual income is greater than Trump's net worth. Mm, right. Yeah. And that was even a while ago, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, who knows how it is now? But uh, you, were, you were talking about how the, all the fears about Trump uh, after 2016, but it's the attitude on Wall Street is totally different now, right? You wrote about the Davos and yeah. uh, and how amazing it was because he kind of ran as being the enemy of these people, these globalist internationalists, right? right? And, and everyone in Davos was terrified of him. Yeah, I, I was in Davos pre-Trump, and everyone's like, the the two worst things that could possibly happen to planet Earth if you were Davos man. <laughs> were Brexit and Trump. And then they both happen, and the general Davos consensus is, we were totally right about Brexit, it was terrible, it is bad, it is going to be worse, and this is a very, very bad thing, on the one hand. And then on the other hand, Trump, oh yeah, he's actually been okay for us. Mm. Like, yeah, he started a bunch of trade wars, and he's pulled out of the Paris Climate Change Agreement, and he doesn't believe in internationalism, and he has this crazy idea about, you know, nationalism and America first and making America great again. And we don't actually agree with any of that, but he's been okay for us. And they, and when he goes to Davos, they fill the, um, you know, the biggest rooms and they kowtow to him and they try and get meetings with him and they at least pretend to respect him. Yeah, you wrote about how, you know, Greta Thunberg got all the headlines, but it was Trump who was actually the, 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 the bigger hit. Greta, uh, Greta Thunberg, I've been in the room that Greta Thunberg was speaking in. The room that Greta Thunberg was speaking in was smaller than the room we're recording this podcast in. <laughs> but was it filled to the gills or not even? It was filled to the gills with like 150 right. people. And right? Trump was like... And Trump was filled to the gills with 5,000 people. Right. Yeah. Wow. How yeah. dare you? What do you... But uh, that to me is a little bit counterintuitive because Trump... Even, even though the stock market is humming and he hasn't done you know, even a tenth of the things that he said he was going to do, still rhetorically, he's still responsible for this, at least in America, this attitude about opposing internationalists and globalism and neoliberalism. And, I mean, that, that's still a thing, isn't it? Why would they, they want to buddy up to that guy? And I fear that they will find out in their 
pocketbooks what the downside of a Trump presidency is if he gets reelected. That there was some degree to which the you know quote unquote globalists, by which I mean Jews, right. um, <laughs> were were you know trying to keep him sane. Um, and then I think I would date the unleashed Trump to about the point at which he pulled out of Syria. Like this is something that he had tried to do a few times mm -hmm. and common minds had prevailed and said like no that's really not a good idea we shouldn't do that and then it never quite happened but then all of those common minds basically got kicked out of the white house he wakes up one morning saying we need to pull out of syria no one says no to him and then it actually happens and now he's in this mode of if i wake up in the morning wanting to do something i want it to happen i don't want anyone to tell me it was a bad idea and if he gets a second term, I think you're going to see that a lot, and that is not going to be good for anyone. But isn't it also kind of, doesn't it speak to how his his rhetoric, I mean, so yeah, you have the example of Syria, but in general, his rhetoric isn't matched by his policy? It, yeah, I mean, if you and go back over the, if you go back over the um, first term, the first Trump term as a whole, I think you're right. Although, there yeah, are some things, the there are, depends which one immigrant you ban, you know. Sure, yeah. but I guess I mean more like in terms of hurting the pocket. But, I mean, but look at the immigrant ban. Like, the immigrant ban is weird, right? When, when he's on the campaign trail, he's like, I'm going to ban all Muslims from coming right. into the country. And now it's like, I'm going to ban 7,000 Nigerians from coming into the country, but not the ones on tourist visas and not the ones on business visas, just the ones on, like, family reunification visas. And you're like, why? What? <laughs> None of this makes any sense. Yeah, a lot of it's kind of random with with Trump, or seemingly random, right? Like the, the right. He's like, the I'm, going, I'm going to ban New Yorkers from using global entry. It's like, <laughs> great. You know, that that's really like up there with you know. Uh, what, what what's your conception of benevolent aristocracy? Can you talk about this? You've written about this a few times. And oh, the, the, the Hamiltonian the, thing. Yeah. Well, and Bloomberg and and you know this this whole idea of philanthropy and how billionaires their their conception of. Uh, enacting change, but without necessarily democratic approval, right? So, yeah, there, there's a big question, which is like, is philanthropy a good thing? Mm, um, right. And the general conception of the American public is, oh yes, right. philanthropy is always and everywhere a good thing. I'm giving money to charity, I'm giving it away, that's good. I'm do it, giving, doing it for good causes, what's not to love? Um, in practice, it is much more complicated than that. But to understand the, the big problem here, you need to understand the distinction between philanthropy and charity. Mm. If you are walking down the street and you see right. some guy who needs some money and you give him 10 bucks, that's charity. Right. And it is helpful and it is generally always good and it's not problematic. Philanthropy aspires to be much bigger than that, much more systemic than that, and to make change at right. scale. And that doesn't mean give 10 bucks to 10,000 people, it means set up an entire institution to take these people right. and hone them and house them and um, feed them and upskill them and get them jobs and all of this kind of stuff, right? Big systemic stuff. And then, because you can only afford to do that no matter how rich you are, I mean, to put this in perspective, you know, the entire Bloomberg net worth right. is probably like the annual budget of the New York schools department, right? So you, you really, in order to really scale this stuff, what you need to do is implement programs which are so successful 
and so cost effective that you can then persuade governments mm. to come in and put all of their billions behind them. So one of the, interestingly, one of the best philanthropists in the world is Bono. Oh, yeah. He doesn't have a huge amount of money himself. I mean, he's a multimillionaire, but he's not like Mike Bloomberg rich. But what he does have is the ability to persuade finance ministers around the world to take a whole bunch of money, like tens of billions of dollars, and put it towards the Global Fund and Gavi, which which are these major international programs to to fight AIDS and malaria and cholera in, 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 um, in developing countries, and they've been very, very successful. So Philanthropy is about persuasion and is about persuading governments to do things that are good. But Theoretically. The, right. But the point is, right, that's what democracy is supposed to be f- about. And so what you wind up with is philanthropy is essentially mm, unaccountable right. billionaires using their privileged access to governments to get the governments to do what those unaccountable right. billionaires want them right. to do. That on its face is incredibly undemocratic. And also leads to, like we were talking about this uh, with Bloomberg, right? That makes, gives him disproportionate political access and political power because certain nonprofits won't want to um, make him angry because they don't want to lose Right. their good standing with him or their money, the, the money he gives them. Right, that's, that's also part of it. You're not, you're not going to bite the hand that feeds you, and Mike Bloomberg has been feeding a lot right. of hands. Yeah, I mean, isn't this a sort of, this is the thing that's really bothered me about his campaign, is that it's almost, I feel like that's part of the central message of his campaign, is I give away a lot of money, right. and I'm going to affect change in this way that, fundamentally isn't all that democratic, right? I mean, it, it's, it's sort it's of a top... weirdly close to what Trump said in the campaign when he was criticized for having donated money to the Clintons. Mm-hmm. And he's like, that's what I right, do. Yeah, I right. donate money to people so that they wind up doing Every, what I ask everyone, them to yeah. do. It's like, I, I need people to right. owe me favors. Yeah. And that's how rich people behave. That's certainly how Trump behaved. That's how Bloomberg behaves at a much, much higher greater scale, and it is deeply undemocratic. It also undermines, I mean, this is an interesting contrast with like a Sanders view of the world, right, where he sees it as a question of justice, not charity. So there is this, you know, there's this kind of political intellectual debate over how much charity undermines the, you, you, you frame things that should be seen as rights. Yes. As privileges. And, and certainly there is a strain of libertarianism, right. which is not easy to find in the contemporary Republican Party, but it's definitely there, right. which basically says um, it is not the government's job to step in and protect, you know, the most at-need Americans from, you know, starving to death on the street. Um, that's the job of the philanthropic sector. Right. sector. And you're like, mm. Yeah. yeah, a thousand yeah. points yeah. of light. I remember right. that was the whole, yeah. Is yeah. charter school, are charter schools part of uh, the world of philanthropy? Yes. Like that's yes. Like and, and, that, and, and if you find a billionaire philanthropist in New York, um, you don't need to look more than about six inches away from them and you'll find some kind of a charter right. school. Right. For some reason, and I don't entirely understand why, charter schools are super, super popular among Wall Street philanthrotypes. And the I hedge fund never, guys. Right. The hedge fund guys, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. isn't it bec- precisely because it lets the government, I mean, it lets the government off the hook or tries to let the government off the hook? Well, no, the, the government hook? is still paying for them. Yeah, yeah, but it takes, but it puts like a private, the, the, the investment isn't, 
is shaping the people. It's not the government who necessarily controls the. Um, well, I, th the, I think for for a lot of these guys, it's a conceit where they feel like they, you know. This is this is my way of influencing the most impressionable, vulnerable people, and I'm going to help lift up. You right, know, this, it's a talented it, tent thing. You know, it's uh, for, for me. I think it's an ego thing for a lot for a lot yeah. of these they guys. They want they want to see um, really spectacular results. Right, and if you pour a huge amount of attention and skill and money into one school, yeah. it's a lot easier to create spectacular right. results than if you try and spread that across right. the entire school system. And so that's what they do. They're like, let me just build one school and I'll make it as good as I can, and then I can go around shouting from the rooftops about how smart, how much smarter I am than the government because my school right. is better yes. than the government schools. Whereas if you'd just taken those resources and put them into the school system as a whole, it wouldn't have made that much of a difference. There was one guy, a supermarket billionaire in Texas, whose name I forget, who has done the opposite thing and say, no, I want to lift everyone right. up. And he's literally just giving money to the Texan education department. And that's like a much more selfless way of giving because yeah. you're not going to be able to point to spectacular results yeah. in every school. And he's not demanding, as you rather, I think you put it out for like a proof of concept for some ridiculous thing, right? He's, right. Just, he's just giving money to help, basically. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, I, we could keep you here all I, yeah. but But uh, two things I want to ask you. One, just generally, how do you see the the election playing out? This is like the weirdest election season I can remember in, in America. But two, a question I always get from people that I'm never able to answer. Uh, 2008 happened. Is there anything on the horizon in terms of a similar danger to the financial system that you see covering Wall Street? I'm going to take, ask that question first. Um, no. No. I, no kind of bubble activity in any, in any of the markets? I, I am not worried about another financial crisis. Okay. Um, that it is reasonably well understood what, what causes financial crises in general and what caused the 2000 financial, 2008 financial crisis in particular. Um, those preconditions aren't in place right now, and the banks are much stronger than they were back then. They're much better capitalized. Um, well, there, there was the biggest, most important change to the global financial system in decades happened in 2009, and absolutely no one's heard of it except for Matt Taby. It's called Basel III. <laughs> and Basel III was huge. It was a coordinated international agreement, a little bit like the Paris Climate Agreement with teeth, mm. for every country in the world to basically force every bank in the world to be much, much safer. And it worked. And it happened with no fanfare, because if there had been any fanfare, there would have been a bunch of pushback. So they did it very quietly, but they did it. And because they did it, I am really genuinely sanguine about the risk of another financial crisis. This does not mean that stocks couldn't fall by 50%. Right. Right. Like, which they the, might be doing as which we speak. Which they might be doing as we speak. Like, yeah. the, the stock market is a random number generator, and it goes up and it goes down. And if it goes up, then people are happy. And if it goes down, then people are scared. And it affects sentiment, but we went through a major stock market crash in 2000, and it really had a very little effect on the economy as a whole. Um, and so, yeah, we can have a stock market crash, for sure, but we're not going to have a financial crisis. 
another like massive speculative bubble on that on that order isn't isn't happening. Well, it could oh, I mean, in yeah, stocks, I mean, you but, could, yeah. you could, yeah, like that's the point. You can have speculative bubbles crash, right? Um, in in stocks, in Bitcoin, in gold, in Picassos, you name it, and that's all fine. Um, the danger, the crises happen when it's the when when the, the crises happen in the debt markets, mm -hmm. right? So, if you have mortgages get into trouble, then you get a crisis. Right. right. And uh, and just quickly, the election. Uh, what what's your take on it? And how do you think? Um, how do you think a, a Sanders versus Trump? Uh, general election campaign would play out in terms of what, what would the financial community think about that? Oh, I mean, it's, it's as someone who spends basically all my life inside the New York coastal elite financial right. community, yeah. um, it's hard for me to have a gut feeling for how a Sanders election, Sanders Trump election plays out in the real world. Right. In my little bubble, it would be just sheer incomprehension and I can't understand either of these two morons and they're both terrible. And that's what people would be saying. And that's yeah. what that's what people would be saying. And um, and what and this would be the first election ever that you don't really have a candidate of the coastal elite. You don't have a candidate of Wall Street. And Wall Street just they're they're both bashing Wall Street and then the voters just vote for the candidate who they think is more aligned with their view of how to bash Wall Street. And maybe, and, and I think that aligns, you know, with what we saw in the UK as well, where the Conservative Party won the last election by basically adopting the anti-elite messaging of the opposition, of the Labour Party. So this is, this is not a good time to be a neoliberal. And the neoliberals are going to lose this election no matter what the outcome is. And, you know, that pendulum has swung. I mean, normally, both candidates are Wall Street candidates, right? Right. right. And now they're not. It's possible that right. I mean, have if you one. have if you have like Bush versus Obama, right? You know, it's right. very hard right. to choose between them. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Right. I mean, yeah. I think Obama even got more money from Wall Street. Didn't right. He? Yeah. Oh, okay. So where can people find you? Tell us about Slate Money also. Um, they Slate, yeah, Slate Money comes out on Saturday mornings. Um, podcast. You find it in exactly the same place that you are listening to this here podcast now, <laughs> um, and it is equally good. There are only two podcasts in the world. There's, yours and mine? There's, ours and, uh, yours and there's ours. like This American Life uh, and- Not me, us. There's This American, well, there you go. Yeah. There's This American Life and super produced narrative journalism. And then there's three random people sitting around the table right. talking. <laughs> I am the best version of three random people sitting around the table <laughs> yeah. talking, except for possibly this one. Right. So check out Slate Money. We just had Connor Doherty on from the New York Times. Um, talking about the housing crisis, and that was quite good. Thanks so much for coming in. Thank this you. is great, yes, and is great, uh, yeah. we'll talk to you again. That was great. It was great. Felix is one of my favorite people. I've known Felix for a long time. Yeah. We used to cross paths a lot during kind of the post-crisis years. Uh, midlife crisis? No, the financial crisis. Sorry, I yeah. can't help it. Yeah, I'm still having my midlife crisis. Oh, good, okay. Yeah. I'm glad useful idiots can be part of it. Yeah, I already did I already did the unnecessarily fast car. Now I'm doing the 
the hobby I should have taken up as a teenager. Podcasting? No, drums. drumming. Yeah, okay. yeah. So, uh, yeah, no, he's great. The point of view of the financial community is going to be super interesting if, if Bernie wins the nomination yeah. because they're going to be frozen out of the entire election. And, right. and so it'll, it'll, it's really good to hear uh, his point of view and have him explain some of the things that have gone on. Yeah. I like that he didn't like the, um, the philanthropy world. Oh, yeah. That's great. Yeah, he's written a lot about that. I didn't really frame it well. What I meant is, like, it undermines taxing, basically. Mm -hmm. Not government so much, but undermines raising taxes. Yeah, and I think he's making a similar point, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, that was great. Uh, yeah, that was, that, that was that great. That was useful, idiots, and it's, it's only going to get crazier from here. We have a, a, a nutty week ahead of us. Oh, yeah. So, uh, we have we're some gonna great have some, guests coming on. We'll, and we have some unusual material coming next, next week as well. So uh, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll see you next week. Yeah, see you next week. Make sure you buy the merch. Oh, yeah, the you merch. find us wherever you find your podcast. Yeah. You rate and review us wherever you'd rate and review us. Yeah. Mostly on iTunes, I believe. Right. And you make sure that you save America from Pod Save America. Right. By Don't go rating near and reviewing Pod us. Pod Save America. Yeah. yeah. Save yourself. Save your soul. Save the country. Save the yeah. world. They do have Pod Save the World, too. So save the world from Pod Save the World. Ugh. All great. Right, great. We'll, we'll see you next week. The Ed Milet Show showcases the greatest peak performers sharing their journey, knowledge, and thought leadership. This is one of the all-time best pieces of advice ever given on the show. Actor Rain Wilson. The number one thing that psychologists point to with young people of why they are struggling so much in this mental health epidemic is they don't have resilience. So how do you build resilience if you don't understand suffering itself? The Ed Milet Show is available on YouTube or wherever you listen. Hi there. Sorry for the interruption, but are you enjoying this show on Google Podcasts? You should know that the Google Podcasts app is going away this spring. That's right, going away, gone as in no longer available. You can still enjoy this show elsewhere, though. Try out Spotify or Amazon Music, or maybe TuneIn is more your style. Whatever app you switch to, be sure to follow so you never miss the next episode. And thanks for listening wherever you listen.